Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, we're going to be looking at the forecast for March of 2020, of 2020. I'm still getting used to saying that. We're only like a month or two into this. Joining me today is Austin Kopic and Kelly Surtees, and we are doing our monthly forecast episode. We're in the beginning of the month, or beginning of the episode, we'll spend about an hour looking at the astrology of the next few weeks, and then the second half of the episode we're going to spend some time talking about miscellaneous astrological topics that have come up over the past month, the primary one of which is a recent discussion about essential dignities. So, uh, hey guys, welcome back to the show. Hi. Hey. hey. All right. So, uh, this is episode 245 of the Astrology Podcast. Let's jump right into the forecast for the month, shall we? We're recording this on what is it? Sunday, February 23rd, 2020, starting around 9:35 a.m. right now here in Denver, Colorado. Yeah, and we are in the middle, we're in the midst of, we're not even halfway through, I don't think as we're recording this, the Mercury retrograde that's happening right now in Pisces uh in late February, right? Correct. Yeah, we have um many days to go. Well, 14 days after today. 14. So here's the Here's the chart of our the moment. We have just had and we timed this episode to be right after the new moon in Pisces at four degrees of Pisces. And the Venus Jupiter square is actually just coming, becoming exact today. Ah, that's so that's yeah, now you remember. That's part of what now we were I remember. Okay. <laughs> when yeah. we scheduled no, this. No, I remember episode. we decided to do this early for a reason. And yeah. I was able to hold that, but I could not remember the reason. Yes. Yeah, well, the fact ironic- that there was a reason gave me strength, but I did not remember what it was. <laughs> strength to wake up at seven seven a.m. Uh, yeah, we well, we wanted to avoid doing it in the middle of a Mercury retrograde with Gemini rising, because then that would just make Mercury mm-hmm. the focal point of the entire electional chart, and we didn't really want to do Cancer rising either, because it would put Mars right. right on the descendant in the seventh house with Saturn and Pluto. So we are doing an early morning episode now with Taurus rising. Why don't we jump in though to yeah. the astrology of March? So I'm going to move the chart forward so that those watching the video version can see where the planets will be at the start of the month. I also wanted to share from our planetary alignments calendar the basic planetary alignments that show the ingresses and the stations as well as the two lunations, the new moon and full moon this month. So the basic overview is that we start out the month uh, with Mercury still retrograde, and it actually retrogrades and moves back into Aquarius on March 4th. Uh, The same day, Venus moves out of Aries finally and moves into Taurus. The following week, we get a full moon in Virgo on the 9th of March, and on the same day, interestingly, Mercury stations direct in late Aquarius. Uh, Then eventually Mercury starts moving forward again. It moves back into Pisces on the 16th of March. The sun ingresses, as it always does around this time of the year, into Aries on the 19th. And then we get a major outer planet shift of Saturn going into Aquarius on the 21st of March, followed by a new moon in Aries on the 24th. And Mars actually catches up to and joins, and very soon after conjoins Saturn uh, in a conjunction on the 30th of March when it moves into Aquarius and then shortly afterwards hits Saturn. So that's the that's the basic gist or the basic overview of the month. And this is definitely one of the more notable months of the year, especially because of those ingresses into Aquarius, I think. 
uh, I think we would all agree, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, one one ingress more than the other, but yeah, Saturn. It'll be the first time we've experienced Saturn in a sign other than Capricorn since ooh, just before Christmas of 2017. Yeah. So for three years, and also first time in almost three decades that Saturn has returned back to Aquarius, which is kind of monumental in the grand scheme of things, just in and of itself. Yeah. It's yeah, huge. and it's. It's important. It's a bit of a it's a bit of a tease, but um, you know we'll get into that. But it's still a real thing. It, it really sets it sets an important part of the stage for the second quarter of the year, and then Saturn will snap back. I don't know if Saturn ever snaps. Saturn will <laughs> roll back um, right. benefits. No, Saturn will roll back into uh, Capricorn basically as soon as the third quarter begins. Brilliant. Um, speaking of teases, I feel like when I did the horoscopes this year for March, one of the things that was interesting to me is because Mercury retrogrades back into Aquarius, it returns back to Aquarius and it returns back to, if you're looking at it from a purely sign-based and whole sign house perspective, it returns back to the sign and the house that Mars and Saturn will later move into earlier in the month. And I almost wonder for some people if that Mercury retrograde then and that return back to Aquarius isn't actually queuing up or setting up some of the themes that are going to become more prominent later in the month with some like low-level Mercury retrograde returning to and revisiting or revising themes in that same sign or house um, before we get the full-on Saturn and Mars like heavies move into that sign. Yeah, like a little get your Aquarius ready. Yeah, get your recordings here come, ready. That's here a good... come the malefics. <laughs> <laughs> get ready for Mars and Saturn. <laughs> that is, sure no, but it, that, it is appropriate. An, it, it's a, that's an interesting um, like Aquarius touch because there really hasn't been much happening in Aquarius other than like Sun, Mercury, Venus roll through right. since um, since the middle of 2018, where we had half of a Mars retrograde there and we had this the south node there. But for all of 2019, there were no there were there wasn't even a Mercury station there. There wasn't anything other than um Sun, Mercury, Venus, Moon. Whereas mm. the direct station of Mercury is an important thing. And Mercury will be retrograding almost entirely in Aquarius next year. And we've got Saturn coming up. So I, I think that is a nice um I don't think it'll be the sort. I don't think it'll be a clear warning or foretelling of the future. But if you're paying attention, that 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 stress on Aquarius, uh, if you follow that, it does lead into a number of things that spool out for the next while. Yeah, it's just a nice little nice little teaser. It's like when in the movies you had a big movie coming out and they drop like a teaser that's like five seconds long, like months and months before anybody gets to see the full trailer uh, or before the movie actually gets released. That's kind of what I feel like this little Mercury retrograde is about. And it's just the tail end of it because most of it's in Pisces, but then we get this little station where it comes back to the very late degrees of Aquarius. Um, so people might so want to th think about like what sign Aquarius is in your chart or where it falls in your chart, and especially what whole sign house, because some of those topics that this retrograde station activates might become even more prominent topics later in the month starting towards the end of March. Um, aside so from Mercury 
just to uh, be clear on so Mercury retrogrades back into Aquarius on March 4th. And that's in preparation for the direct station on March 9th. And so it is during that time that Mercury will drop the sizzle reel. Exactly. The sizzle reel. <laughs> um, how has this retrograde been for you guys so far anyways? Or have you noticed any funny stories? Or usually we get like one good anecdote out of most of them. Oh yeah, we had uh, so we've got some tap plumbing problems that basically started around the start of Mercury retrograde. First of all, a filter fell off the kitchen tap and then the hot water stopped coming out of the kitchen tap. And then a few days later, the tap in the bathroom just stopped working. <laughs> so it's been this progressive uh, sort of wetness theme. Um, and finally, the and then we've had to go to our landlord and get the plumber and that's taken a while because there was a warranty thing, yada, yada, yada. Hopefully the plumber's coming this week. <laughs> we'll see. I like that. That's a good keyword for that's- this Mercury Retrograde, a progressive wetness theme. It has. <laughs> So we had with these Mercury, the last several Mercury retrogrades have been in water signs. Last time we had uh, well issues. And then the time before that, there were dishwasher issues. This time, no water um, issues that I'm aware of, but strong Pisces signification. Uh, on the day of, I was um, I was attempting to use my body in a somewhat athletic way. And I was uh, swinging my leg to stretch the muscles and tendons in it, and I my my I was doing so somewhat obliviously, and my foot came straight up with my toes kind of loose into the arm of my chair, and I jammed my second too little toe um, pretty badly. Um, my it hurt worse than. Um, it hurt worse than most of the hard sparring sessions I've had for ten years. Um, and I just hit it perfectly and my toes were loose and I jammed the shit out of my toe and like half my foot turned purple on the day of the ingress. Um, uh, needless to say this, this Mercury retrograde goes over my Mars, which is in Pisces, the sign of the feet. (laughs) So anyway, no, no lasting harm done, but I was just like looking down. I was like, okay, all right. You know, like literally like oblivious movement, Mercury retrograde on Mars. Mars is perfected for me. There's my stupid purple foot. Yeah. I like that. That's good. That's brilliant. Um, I haven't had anything. I would show the audience, but the bruise is no longer impressive. Okay. Uh, I haven't had anything that notable compared to you guys, just some like bunch of misscheduling and miscommunication type low-level issues. But somebody did remind me, that the main Mercury retrograde-ish uh, episode that I've, we've done at this point was actually episode seven. And that was one of the first episodes that you and I did, Kelly, um, titled Mercury Retrograde Myths and Realities. Yeah, that's that was vintage. Somebody I saw that come up on Twitter. Um, <clears throat> vintage. Yeah, that's back from 2013. Been meaning to redo that because it was more of like a casual discussion that we just had. But one of these days we might want to do like tackle a more like everything you need to know about Mercury retrograde with a whole list of examples and everything else. A meteor version. Definitely. Totally. All right. So going back to the astrology though of this month, so the Mercury retrograde um, continues on. When do we get, do you guys know offhand, I'll, I'll pull it up really quickly, but when do we get the Sun-Mercury conjunction? Oh, that's next, that's mm. Monday. Oh, Tuesday. Yeah, that's actually, that's actually before- March. Isn't that, yeah, that, it's end of 25th of Feb. N- n- yeah. It, oh, do you, you mean when Mercury's still begins. retrograde? 
Yeah, yeah. So it looks like 25th, 26th of February, we always already get the halfway point through the Mercury retrograde cycle where it conjoins the sun. And by that point, sometimes if you're dealing with Mercury retrograde issues and there's some sort of um, snafus or miscommunications or string of issues that come up, there starts to be the end in sight or some uh, some resolution starts to come in sight by that time. So once we open March, we're already getting towards the end of the retrograde cycle. Uh, We can see Mercury retrograding back into Aquarius by March 3rd, March 4th. Yeah, March 4th is an interesting day because Mercury will retrograde out of Pisces into Aquarius and then Venus is actually going to leave Aries and go into Taurus. So there's a real... I mean, it, there's a real dignity switch on that day. Um, not that Mercury magically gets better, um, but it it won't. It'll be have a very different tone. Mercury retrograde in Aquarius rather than Pisces. Yeah, I'm really excited about that actually. For Venus to get out of Aries, where it stops like getting squared by Mars and Pluto and Saturn and all of that stuff, and moves into a sign, moves into one of its home signs where it does. Have some dignity just to tie it into our later discussion. Uh, and there's actually some nice Venus elections this month um, in the month of March as a result of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like one of the themes for March is get Venus while you can uh, because she is, she's, she's lovely in Taurus. She's got a lot to offer, not dealing with hard angles to the Capricorn situation. Uh, I know we will have Venus in Libra later in the year, but. There's going to be sort of a, a lot of cardinal pressure at that time. So yeah. enjoy Venus well, and Taurus while you can. <laughs> definitely. It will be Venus and Libra opposite a retrograde Mars and Aries. Yeah. And so the experience will not be of grace and peace. No. Yeah. The only um, little slight bit of like turbulence that Venus runs into is very early on hitting the conjunction with Uranus at three degrees four degrees of Taurus around March 7th, March 8th, which is really interesting because we're still getting used to what that's like of Venus not just passing through her home sign sort of on her own, but instead having this major outer planet there in what is otherwise like her fixed sign, uh, so fixed Earth sign of Taurus, but then having the somewhat destabilizing or at least um, somewhat like eccentric planet there at the very beginning of that sign, offsetting the balance of things a bit. Totally. I mean, I'm in, I'm kind of curious about that Venus-Uranus conjunction because I think it will give each of us in the context of our indi- individual lives a little bit of insight about the longer trend of Uranus in Taurus uh, because Venus is the ruler of Uranus there in Taurus and so, you know, for people who are still trying to get their head around how this is affecting their Taurus house or the Taurus part of their chart and their life, I think that conjunction uh, March 8th is going to be, you know, just pay attention to the topics or the themes or the issues that kind of come up for you personally, because mm. that will be part of that longer Uranus and Taurus trend for you. I think Definitely. that's a really good way to look at it. Totally. Um, so, yeah, that conjunction takes place then. <clears throat> there's not much else in terms of Venus. I mean, Venus is just transiting through that sign of Taurus for the entirety of the rest of March. So people paying attention to just what house Taurus is associated with in your chart, and especially if you have a night chart, that being potentially a more positive uh, transit as it's going through and activating some of those topics, um, especially 
it starts hitting some nice trines later in the month, uh, like especially around March 26th, March 27th, when it uh, and 28th, where it forms an exact trine with Jupiter around 23, 24 of Taurus, making a trine to Jupiter at 23 uh, Capricorn. Yeah, there's some, um, I mean, as far as electable moments around Venus, um, I don't trust uh, Uranus being right next to Venus because Uranus, you know, just will throw whatever at you. Right. Um, there, there'll be, you know, there'll be a pattern to a Uranus transit over that seven, eight years. Um, but you know, on any given weekend where something is conjoined, you don't really, <clears throat> you know, it's hard to know what the output is going to be. You mm. know, there's like a fifty percent chance of surprise, and that chance has a fifty percent chance <laughs> of being favorable. Um, but you're not, you can't even bank on there will definitely be a surprise that weekend. <laughs> um, so I just, you know, I, I don't trust it. But once Venus clears Uranus, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of pretty smooth sailing. It, it's a nice yeah. um, background. It's a nice stabilizer for the month. And it's also worth noting that Taurus is the last sign that Venus does uh, this year before moving into Gemini and then having a very extended retrograde time in Gemini. Mm. So That's good a point. really good reminder, actually. Once she finishes up with Taurus, we're just going to have four months of Venus in Gemini. So... If you want something other than that, yeah. <laughs> if you want something other than that, well, get in Venus fast. And Gemini does does offer variety. That's true. That's true. No one will be bored. That's for sure. But if you're looking for, I guess that, as you said, I think both of you guys have used that word stability, um, or you want to stabilize or secure or do something with a little bit more of a long term focus. That's of a Venus nature. Uh, then pretty much after the. I don't know, about the 10th or 11th of March, once Venus gets a couple of degrees past that conjunction with Uranus. Yeah, and I think we can I think we can say with confidence that Venus and Taurus is considerably more chill than Venus and Gemini. Oh, way more chill, less frantic. Uh, more, more I mean, Venus and Taurus is so good for just getting you back in your body or helping you connect with those pleasurable tastes and sensations. Uh you know, whether it's a food or a fragrance or a, a healing therapy, you know, Venus in Taurus is just great for in, in like literally smell the roses, but have the nice chocolate, have the nice wine, um, send the thoughtful gift, you know, take the time for quality time as well, I think is another Venus in Taurus thing. Venus in Gemini is going to be juggling a lot, uh, whereas Venus in Taurus is more, you know, be in the moment. I like, I like that you added um, uh, send a, a thoughtful gift. Because I, uh, I think astrologers, myself included, have a habit of discussing what you will receive during a nice Venus transit or what you're going to get, um, which, of course, uh, implies a giver. But um, mm -hmm. <laughs> we, 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 we tend to, to stress the, uh, the receiving end of that. I think that's really – but Venus is very, very equally giving as it is receiving. So I really like that, Kelly. Mm. Oh, cool. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, Love good point. Um, so we've got some nice Venus stability to some extent once it clears Uranus this month uh, compared to some of the, the rest of the year where it's in more of a transitional sign as well as a transitional phase with the retrograde in Gemini. But going back earlier in the month, what else do we have going on? Uh, that's kind of the first 
week basically of the month is that ingress of Venus into Taurus and Mercury retrograded into Aquarius, but then starting to slow down before it eventually stations direct on March 9th. But that kind of takes us into our first lunation, I think, right? Yes. Same yeah, day. Well, and just one one quick statement about the the sort of the way the the Venus the nearly simultaneous Venus and Mercury sign shifts affect the Gestalt. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's less of a Pisces soupy mess um, once we get past that first week because we you know we went <clears throat> um, we no longer have Mercury in uh, we no longer have Mercury in Pisces. And then Venus is no longer in Aries, and Aries is certainly not Pisces or a water sign. Um, but fire signs also tend to be more shoot from the hip, less um, less objectively le- uh, less objectively rooted oriented than Earth signs. And so we go from fire and water to Earth and air, both of which are drier and sort of from the outside read a little bit more sane and less dynamic. That's a great point, actually, <laughs> and definitely less soupiness, which yeah, as much as I love the Pisces soup, I'm, I'm looking forward to a Mercury switch. Yeah. yeah. Um, and just a shift to the fixed signs a little bit in our chart in general, which again, just mm. paves the way again for a much larger shift towards the fixed signs in our chart later in the month when Saturn and Mars move in there. Yeah, that's a really astute point, Chris. All right, so uh, this brings us to our first lunation of the month, which is a full moon that takes place at 19 degrees of Virgo on it looks like March 9th, and it's weird, a little weird that um, this is a full moon that's taking place in a Mercury ruled sign of Virgo, uh, the same day or the same sort of time frame when Mercury is stationing direct at 28 degrees of Aquarius. Yeah, it's an interesting piece with with Mercury, the ruler, stationing. The sense that I have as we come into that second week of March is that we do get some clarity or we get the opportunity to untangle things or try to straighten things out a little bit. Um, even to pick up what you were saying, Austin, about the earthiness of Venus in Taurus, you know, shortly after that happens, our lunation is a full moon in an earth sign as well. So that opportunity mm-hmm. to organize, uh, restructure perhaps a little bit more with time and in the material world as well. So I think I think that's an important day this month. Yeah, it's like yeah, uh, the resolution of the Mercury retrograde is the bringing to light of something. Uh, which is not always the case with a Mercury retrograde, but sometimes the miscommunications or the path of uh, going back and revisiting something, uh, sometimes the end result of that or the way out of that is coming to terms with or finding out about something that you didn't know. And that's kind of an interesting set of symbolism for this full moon in Virgo this month in a Mercury ruled sign as it's stationing direct, that that might be part of the end or that there's some sort of revelatory process or period towards the end of that that opens things up and leads to the resolution of the retrograde. Yeah. Um, Austin, were you going to say something? Otherwise, I have one more point. Um, No, please go ahead. I'm thinking about something, but I'm not sure if I want to say it and if I do how. Okay. So please go ahead. The only... 
The, it's just very brief. The Mercury station at 28 Aquarius is where Mercury last, well, Mercury was last at that degree in very early February. So if there's something from early February that's still a little bit unresolved or incomplete for you, you might get an opportunity around that Mercury station to finalize it or revisit it and finally put it to bed, um, just playing off the degrees there. Yeah, I'm backing up to see. So Mercury first passed 28 degrees of Aquarius, which is the degree it will retrograde back to. It looks like February 1st or February 2nd. So it may be returning back to something that you did that you thought was just like a one-time thing, but for some reason you end up having to return back to that action or something that was initiated at that time in order to revisit it and perhaps redo or at least reconsider what was initiated at that time. Yeah. Is that where you're going with that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The idea that, you know, we maybe there's something that's just not finished um or you've been trying to get done but it's been on the back burner or it got stuck. Um and then sometimes well, when Mercury can... just comes out of its station it's like a second chance piece. Right. Austin, chance. you can? Well, yeah, I can think of an example uh immediately and some sometimes it is something that you didn't know that you would need to revisit. Um, but sometimes right. it's something that you knew you were going to revisit and it makes perfect sense that around then you'd have to follow up. Um, like, so I launched, uh, I opened up, uh, enrollment in my 2020 classes on February 1st and cause right. we had a nice, we had a nice, there was a there nice was an election, election <laughs> right? Um, right. and so, um, but th those don't begin until April. So of course I'm going to be following up with the people who signed up and kind of getting everybody oriented a couple weeks out, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, um, you know, not sometimes that, that back to this again is a surprise. And sometimes that's just the cycle. And you're like, well, of course I was going to come back to that at about that time. At that time. Yeah, that's a great point. It's not always like a, a problem thing. It was an and something you could have anticipated. Well, and I'm, I'm sure we'll be um, solving problems in the sense of answering questions. Like people are like, oh, I know I wanted to do this, but hey, I had this question about that. Right. So, you know, there will be, I'm sure there will be a problem solving quality. Um, so, one thing I just wanted to jump back very briefly to the the March 4th uh, dual ingresses. So one thing that's really, so my, so my birthday is March 5th, right? And so I was looking at, oh, when's my solar return this year? And it's March 4th. Because it's a leap year, a lot of people's actual solar returns after, after that leap day at the end of February are going to be the day before. So your, your astro mm. birthday is going to be the day before. Um, in a lot of cases, that's yeah, because I, I looked at that, I was like, "Wow, that's really early on the fourth, you know, because the actual return will move around a little bit. Um, and I was like, "Oh, it's a leap year, so there's literally another day um yes. before that because I was I, I was curious whether you know, did my solar return have Venus in Aries or Venus in Taurus or Mercury in Pisces <laughs> or Mercury in Aquarius, right? What did you Lucky end up with? you, you get the better options. <laughs> No, I would have much rather it just been the fifth. Um, <laughs> oh, it's sorry, uh, no, pardon, is it not the fifth? I thought you said it. Sorry, I missed. I, that is my that is my calendar birthday, but my right. uh, my solar return this year is like the afternoon of the fourth. It's like twenty. Uh, I don't know, twenty two hours before my birth time, um, and so yeah, I've got Venus in Aries and Mercury in Aquarius. I was hoping I would get that that Venus ingress, but. It's okay. so funny I have, I have, when you have something like that, like a solar return chart where you're like, 
hoping it'll be fall on one side, but then it falls on the other for whatever on the reason. Other. Yeah. yeah. But neither yeah. of those planets are your time lord this year, are they? No, no. And no. 29 Aries actually is configured exactly to my ascendant axis. So right. that's 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 okay. Um in some ways that might be preferable. Um no, my time lord's gonna be Jupiter. Um so yeah. that's you know, Jupiter is just You guys are gonna have Jupiter the same is- time lord, right? Oh no. No. No, you're sorry, but you can't, yours is Saturn, Chris. Sorry. Oh, me? Uh, yeah. Yeah, Saturn. Uh, Jupiter's in that sign, though, natally, so it's kind of yeah. activated this year. I, hmm. <laughs> I thought of something when I was teaching recently, Chris. What was that? You're 35 right now. Hmm? And so is um, Prince Harry. Okay. And, um, <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, oh, this is interesting. <laughs> yeah. Just like- you know, you're, I don't know, it was just like, oh, you guys are the same age. I just hadn't put that together, I guess. Right. Well, and there's the resemblance as well. But well, uh, of course. You know, we're, we're both in the 12th house perfection years. And yeah, I can see his is really interesting how they've been <laughs> dealing with that and going through that as we talked about, I guess, on the last episode. Yeah. Um, but yes, I'm still finding my way through mine. Uh, trying yeah, to- it's hard. <laughs> Hard out there. Do for it as gracefully as I can. Right. Twelve thousand years. Yeah, we've all we've all had them, and we're all going to have them again, basically. Well, and it's funny seeing we haven't necessarily all had them because it's funny seeing a lot of the twenty-three year olds going through their twelfth house perfection years for the first time as adults, and that's been really interesting to to watch in various ways. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting, Chris. You have you have, so you have the. Never mind. No, you don't. I had no, what all, I thought was an observation right that's not that's yeah. not an observation. Well, and Kelly's birthday is coming up in a few days. Yes, my birthday. I definitely I actually have the moon and Venus like moon in Aries in mine as well. Mm. Um, in- interesting. That brings up an interesting question then Kelly that you could probably answer more than anybody I know, which is I don't honestly ha- or haven't for years focused on solar returns a lot. But um, people always debate that question that do focus on solar returns heavily of relocated solar return or uh, natal solar return. Have you noticed, do you have a strong preference or have you noticed a difference? I probably haven't paid enough attention. Like I probably should do a comparative study, uh, but I tend to just do my natal location. Okay. Um, I am one of those people that by the time I was two or three years old, I have never lived in the city I was born in. I've lived in other places just all over. So what city were you born in? I was born in Brisbane in Australia, but I left, I haven't lived in Brisbane since I was three years old. Right. Um, Lived in like- I went to Fiji and then to Sydney and then to Canada and now to Europe. (laughs) Wow. Lots of uh, mutable energy in my chart. So um, it's funny because you don't often stop to think about it. But when I say it like that, I'm like, oh, you sound a bit like a flitty butterfly or something. Um, but International I traveler. Yeah. <laughs> International, <laughs> International woman of mystery and, uh, yeah, very well-traveled. Very well-traveled. Yeah, so I have always just used my natal location. I know there's a lot of theories about uh, relocate and people traveling for their birthday Right. I, philosophically, I sort of think wherever you go, there you are, and you know, you arrived at a certain moment in time in a certain place, and that that quality of that energy, I don't think you can escape that wherever you go. So I think the the, the natal location. Um, yeah, I, te- I tend yeah. to focus on um, very 
uh, tighter exact transits from the solar return chart to the natal chart, which, you know, um, in the degrees of the planets don't change based on mm. relocation. So that's true. That's true. Uh, yeah. And I don't have a strong opinion. I just thought it was interesting. I was going over some 17th century astrology literature this uh, past week for this episode about why Placidus became the most, most popular form of house division. And it was interesting to, starting to see some astrologers in the 17th century starting to argue about this. And first, the question of just whether solar return charts were useful or not, and different astrologers having extreme opinions on one side or the other on that. And then secondarily, the discussion starting to happen, I think, starting with Marinus about whether to relocate the solar return chart or not. Uh, so yeah, that could be a separate discussion or separate I'm like, episode. There's at some so point. many sidebars that could come right, up yeah. here. Yeah. yeah. All um, right, let's get back to the lunation. Virgo so, full moon. <laughs> I just I, I think know, it's I, a Virgo I, full I, moon, right? Yeah, it's a Virgo one, full moon. That's it, true. One so thing I really like about sidebar analysis makes sense. Yes. I, I almost used this as the electional chart because I really liked this Virgo moon, and I almost used it as the election to do the asteroids interview with Demetra because um, once it hits the full moon, once uh, the full moon goes exact at 19 ah. degrees of Virgo, uh, opposing the sun at 19 Pisces, I it then going here. immediately applies to this really nice trine with Jupiter at 21 degrees of Capricorn. And I think that puts a very nice optimistic or like positive spin on this lunation compared to others that that made me really like it as a potential electional chart for this month. Nice. It's so really it's constructive. Not, it's not the electional chart for the month. I'll introduce that later cuz that's later in the month, but it's a nice little little happy full moon is how I would characterize it in in Virgo. I like it. Yeah, it's a real pull because the, the day before we have the Sun-Neptune conjunction and then we flip over into the Virgo full moon. I, I always like the Virgo full moon in the middle of Pisces season because it's a chance just to kind of come out of the clouds for a period of time and, and maybe do a little bit more uh, detailed or scheduling or uh, practical pieces, the analysis, if you like. Let's just do a bit of strategic planning here. I like that Moon-Jupiter angle. I think that's going to help us with that. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. So we we start with the so the lead up to the full moon is the moon trining Mars and then full moon and then trines Jupiter. Yeah. That's very that's very constructive in a potentially literal way. It's a lot of earth and that, like building you know, that Mars in Capricorn. Yeah, that that's energy, but it's it's martial, but it you know it, it's going to want to move stuff around, whether it's bricks or bodies or whatever, and then sort of resolving <laughs> with bodies. I just love the bodies. You're I love moving the bodies around. Yeah, yeah. I'm like I mean, they might they schedule. might be alive. They might not be. <laughs> you never know when it comes to you, Austin. Which which one it's going to be, or what's being alluded to. So you're in the graveyard. Well, Rearranging. Well, I get it. You know, if, if the bodies hit the floor, then you're probably going to need to pick them up because you can't just leave them on the floor. You know, got to stack them. That's good <laughs> advice for this this month. Um, so there is Tiny definitely your bodies with that emphasis on or Earth science, organizing them, organizing. Yeah, organize your bodies. That's the key word for this. <laughs> Virgo lunation. I mean, I, I'm not going to organize anybody's bodies, but we still have not organized our bookshelves since we moved into this house. So I'm wondering if that might be a good lunation for 
And you know when you can't you can't immediately go the book is there and how annoying that mm-hmm. is. So I think a Virgo yeah. full moon trying to. I know you guys share. We, we I'm <laughs> still seen. dealing with this. I've been in the same place, the new place, like a year, and I still can't find any of my books because I was in the same place for ten years, and I knew where every book in that place was like located just intuitively. But I'm, it's still very offsetting when you don't have that. It's very yeah, that- very. Let's yeah, see Austin. that one right there yeah, your is just book overflow. Growing, Austin. Yeah. No, you can. Well, you can just see more of it now. I've got many, many. I've got many boxes. These are almost everything you see here is actually kind of good. Um, right. But yeah, this one is just. Oop, there it is. Is just overflow. Um, it irritates me because it's not organized by subject matter. Everything else is actually uh, quite organized. I saw your Ben Dykes books in the shelf immediately behind you, I believe, mm-hmm. due Colored to its co- colorful rainbow nature. Yeah, well, we, so we all, we all have very, that shelf. We all do right? have that Dykes shelf. So here's a very nerdy question. I mean, how do you guys organize your books? Do you do a decimal system? Do you have it by topic? Do you have it by author? Do you have it by time period? Um, I had sections at one point, but at one point I had a shelf for like the newer books so that I knew where all the relatively recent ones I'd bought over the past couple of years were because they were often higher priority to read through first. Uh, but then I had different sections for like philosophy or history or the Benjamin Dykes shelf or bookshelf as it, you know, bookcases it eventually has become, um, as well as like the, the hindsight translations and everything else. Okay, topical. I like it. Topical, yeah, yeah. Often. Usually topical for me. Topical. Okay. I mean, I like it's it. really irritating when something fits into more than one topic area. Right. Yeah, like I have, calls. I have, I have an, uh, I have an esoteric Taoism section, and then I also have a martial arts section, and there is some Venn diagram overlap there, and I've spent more emotional energy than is useful. Uh, on figuring out where certain where certain books go, I love it. I love this it. Is a, okay. This is a great discussion topic for the full moon in Virgo, isn't it? Just March 9th. How are we going to organize our books? So, right. um, all of our listeners can tell us in the comments below how they're going to organize their books or bodies if that's what they're doing. Because yeah, well, organizing <laughs> you your know. body doesn't it doesn't have to it doesn't have to be dead. That can you know be getting your exercise regimen back on track. That could be you know eating less um, piles of chocolate at chocolate 3, at 37 in the, in the morning, you know, which was an earlier topic. Yes. Yeah, that tangible quality, though, that's a good um, thing to focus on or a good way of conceptualizing what that focus might be. Because Virgo is definitely one of the most sort of body-oriented signs in terms of like physical health and main- the maintenance of the physical body and the things that go along with that, I feel like, right? Yeah, yeah. I always well, and- see – sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> like Because go? it's an earth sign, it does have that body link, and then it's ruled by Mercury. So it has this weird interface space between how the mind affects the body, how the body affects the mind, getting information that helps you with your body – and then, of course, in the body, you know, always think about Virgo as like being connected to that sort of small intestine, you know, assessing mm-hmm. a simulating part of the body. So mm-hmm. I do see a lot coming up with food and nutrition and digestion when we get strong Virgo signatures like this. 
Sure. Yeah. Well, and if we look at the body parts that the three earth signs rule, uh, neck for Taurus and then guts for Virgo and knees for Capricorn, um, sure, you can have a problem with your with your neck or your knees, but the guts, like your capacity to, you know, you're engaging your guts all the time. It's everything you eat uh, and yes. drink engages the uh, the intestines and your assimilative capacity. So I, I agree that they're more uh, Virgos, therefore somewhat more central than uh, the other two for physical health concerns. Mm. Yeah. And also just uh, the small stuff is contrasted with Pisces, which is like the big stuff, the big picture things, or tends to be more big picture. Virgo tends to be more small picture and like local, but often that is in a good way and can be put to really constructive uses um, in putting into the correct arrangement those systems in your life that function better when they have like a clear organization or pattern, which I think is the theme we were talking about with the book organization, but also applies to your health. Can also apply to like your schedule uh, and other things like that that are somewhat mundane, tangible tasks, but are nonetheless important in terms of the overall functioning of your life. Totally, mm-hmm. and they that- and they go ahead. No, no, no you go. Okay, <laughs> bingo. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, and when we're looking at at things like uh, like like diet or exercise or books. Um, it's not that you need constant awareness of those things, but you do need to focus enough on those things at a time to figure out what the pattern is going to be. And mm. you set the pattern for your diet or you, you, you know, you decide the organizational system for your library or, you know, your workout routine or whatever. And, you know, you design that it's very mercurial and then you set it in place um, and then you take small actions to make sure that it doesn't disintegrate into madness. Um, but it's not, you know, it's not, it, it's very much not that like that um, larger scope, more constant uh, Piscean awareness. It's very focused in not only place, but also time. You're like, okay, we're going to figure this out now. Right. It's very concrete, isn't it? What were you going to say before that, Kelly? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, it's almost like picking up on what Austin said is like, I think it's coming up to tax time in the US. Is that Mm, late March, early April or something? I mean, even in Canada as well. Yeah. So this feels like if you have to get some papers organized, uh, you know, this full moon is going to be a great full moon to maybe you're not filing your taxes, but you're at least starting to make sure you've got everything or these are the receipts, you know, that pertain to X, Y or Z. yeah, just get because the papers I think is a Virgo thing too. So the documents and and filing and things like that. Sure, and mm-hmm. one of the things that's interesting is that because um, I think you mentioned earlier, Austin, this conjunction is happening so close to Neptune, the Virgo full moon stands out then, and that it, there's a tension, and it's like attempting to pull away from and manage and put into a more proper arrangement. Where uh, things that are maybe have gotten out of arrangement, or where things are getting nebulous or uncertain, or in sort of disorder in some way, or whatever Neptune is symbolizing in that way. Yeah, well, especially, yeah, if we think about the days leading up to that, in the days, basically the first week of March, we have the sun 
moving into a conjunction with Neptune, and then the sun uh, completes that conjunction, and then the day after we get the full moon, right? So we're we're um, we're we're moving out of that. Um, you know, we're moving out of we uh, uh, we move out of the soup very quickly, or there's a very strong yeah. impetus to move from from soup to um, I don't know whatever uh, a solid solid food. <laughs> <laughs> to specifics. <laughs> yeah, perhaps the carrots have been boiled, but they they have maintained their structural integrity. Yeah. Yeah, and there's something sort of constructive or effective. And forward moving about that with all of those trines to the Capricorn planets, especially to Jupiter, but also to a lesser extent to Saturn and Mars and Capricorn at the same time. All right. Yeah, so which that's, are. Oh, go ahead. Go. No, go I was ahead. just going to add that, you know, all those, uh, even Mars um, is much slower moving, especially Jupiter, Saturn, Pluto. Um, and so we have the full moon, which, you know, the moon being the fastest of the bodies that we're tracking, um, you know, we have the full moon highlighting all of these slower moving goals or obstacles and making progress relative to, um, not one, but three or four longer term, uh, efforts. Definitely. Perfect. Uh, so then. Mercury stations on the 9th, then that takes us into the third week of March, where Mercury eventually starts moving forward again and then moves back into Pisces on the 16th of the month. Um, then we get the Aries ingress on the 19th, and we're kind of at the point where we can transition into the major stuff that happens towards the end of the month in Aquarius, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we people have a sense of Mercury and Pisces. We're just going to have a little bit more of that starting the 16th, then the equinox, which does bring another planet into a, you know, dignified place for it, which is really changing the landscape. Uh, but the big news, of course, is I mean, this this third week of March is interesting because we've got Mercury changing signs, the sun, and then of course Saturn, which is the headline event. Sure. Mm, yeah, I, mean, I guess we I would say once go ahead. <laughs> I guess we do have the Mars Jupiter conjunction around the nineteenth. Yeah, nineteenth, twentieth. So that's that is that is something. Yeah, the Equinox weekend um is stocked full, stocked full, chock full of changes. And just one statement about the the nine days or the ten days between the full moon and the equinox. Mm. It's relatively chill, uh relatively. Um, yeah, we've just got we've got Sun in Pisces. Venus is in Taurus and has cleared Uranus by then, and so we've got that. That'll be I would say that that's prime time for that Venusian uh, that steadying Venusian influence. Um, all the while, Mars and Jupiter are getting closer together, and so that is invigorating. Um, and if that was a raid against you on a battlefield, you might not like that. But it's Mars in a very uh, it's in its exaltation, which will tend towards the constructive, and it's conjunct Jupiter, which yeah. is going to make it a little bit more mellow, or at least um, well intended. Um, but when we get the equinox, and then that Mars becomes the ruler of the Sun in Aries, and we get some, and we get Saturn moving into Aquarius. Um, that's a it's a real change in the lineup. Look at this pileup on the 18th. Yeah. It's like 
Mars is at 21 Capricorn, Jupiter's at 22 Capricorn. The moon swoops in through uh, Capricorn and starts conjoining all of that. And then we have Pluto at 24 Capricorn and Saturn at 29. So there's just this, this like pileup of like four or five planets in Capricorn. And it's all around those same degrees. I'm thinking back to our January episode where we were focusing, especially Kelly, you we were focusing a lot on the Saturn Pluto conjunction at 24 Capricorn and how that was hitting some specific people's charts that had like 23, 24 cardinal signs rising, right? Yeah, that and the Jupiter Pluto conjunction, which will happen there throughout the year. Um, so this feels like it's a, a trigger. I mean, the moon going into Capricorn each month has been just adding more emphasis or just making more present and real some of these longer threads. Right. Yeah. And setting them off those yeah. outer planet things that are already have been uh, constellating for a while, but then the moon sometimes comes in and then you get the final trigger where an event or sometimes just an action takes place. Like we were focusing a lot on um, Prince Harry and Meghan Merkel's like decision to like sort of leave the UK or at least stop living there partially and sort of extricate themselves to some extent from the royal family and some of their obligations and that being set off in their charts by some of those transits around 24 degrees of Capricorn uh, because they had important placements there. Yeah, Megan's um, descendant is 24 Capricorn and Harry's time lord for the year because he's a um, cap rising. So he's a, a Sag ruled 12th house. So Jupiter, which is at three Capricorn, is his time lord. So even just Mars, the ingress of Mars into Capricorn has activated that for him as well. So it's like for people like them, we would expect a further development of that situation when we see all these planets um, piling up again around those same degrees. Absolutely. I do like the Mars, well, not that I like, but I think the Mars-Jupiter um, in Capricorn, it, it, it does have a productive quality. It's like either decisions are being made, a focusing of your energy or efforts towards long, longer-term undertaking. Um, it's very good for Mars, I think, as you were sort of alluding to, Austin, perhaps. Yeah. It's very good for Mars to have Jupiter there, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's... Um it's way better for Mars than it is for Jupiter. Mars mm. isn't going to be helping Jupiter, but Jupiter is in, in a position where it can help Mars. Yeah. Not only, not only help in terms of like resources, energy, but also soften the Mars a bit without, without pulling its teeth out. Yeah. yeah especially while that's applying, that's a Hellenistic con uh, consideration of bonification where a planet is stabilized and made more positive and more successful than it might be otherwise by applying to a benefic within three degrees. So taking some of Mars's qualities, and some of those qualities are already being um, accentuated in a more constructive fashion by Mars being in the sign of its exaltation and having some of its significations channeled through the more disciplined energy of Saturn when we get Mars meeting up with Jupiter at the same time, we see maybe a bit more success and expansion, whereas Mars and Capricorn might normally expand more slowly and more cautiously. Um, Jupiter might help to expand some of those efforts a little bit more rapidly and um, with a little bit more success in, in doing so. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I think it's um, very 
you know, as far as Mars positions, uh, pretty easy to find the construction constructive version, um, much easier than most of the time. Sure. All right. Um, so we got that whole pileup taking place mid month, and then uh, Mars continues to move forward uh, over some of those other planets. So hitting Pluto eventually, but the next major, major thing that happens is Saturn ingresses into Aquarius. Um, it looks like on the 21st, 22nd of March. Mm -hmm. All right. So this is major uh, for many different reasons. Uh, we touched on very briefly at the very top of the episode, but one of the major reasons is all of the especially the Saturn and Capricorn people, or let's just say people with heavy cardinal placements, or even like their ascendant in a cardinal sign, suddenly after three years of Saturn transiting through that sign and having a very heavy energy uh, that it's bringing to it, suddenly there is like a sigh of relief where whatever that transit's been about for you, there's this temporary period of a few months of alleviation of that energy to some extent and like letting go or or sort of taking an out breath uh, after three years of pretty heavy work in that area. So the cardinal people, it lets up a little bit after a almost three-year period of some heavy transits, whereas the fixed sign people, uh, if you have heavy fixed sign emphasis or you're ascendant in a fixed sign, this is a preview period for about three months of a major long-term three-year transit of Saturn going through uh, a fixed sign and bringing a much heavier energy to that part of your chart. Yeah, and it's part of a larger um, exodus of planets from Capricorn. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, two months, no, month and a half, uh, less than a month and a half after Saturn moves into Aquarius, the nodes move out of Cancer yeah. Capricorn. And so right. we'll be moving, you know, we, we, for the last year and a half or so, we've had both Saturn and the South Node in Capricorn with Pluto. Um, and, you know, while Jupiter will be in Capricorn all year and so in, in Pluto as well, it's at least a little bit less emphasis. It's not the 18 planets, you know, sitting on each other's laps on top of your head. It's also that sort of separation of Saturn and the South Node as well, which I think the combination, mm -hmm. you know, yes, there's been a lot of things in Capricorn, which is in and of itself challenging, but the combination of Saturn and a node in the same sign is just a, a I don't know, there's a, an intensity or a, um, a charge there that is, is very grindy and has been very uncomfortable. So yeah, there's so many, well, this is one of the good things I think is that as soon as Saturn gets out of Capricorn, we're done with Saturn and South Node co-presence as well. Yeah, right. Um, we do get uh, uh, agree totally. We are gonna get. Um, it is gonna be a Saturn Uranus square. It's the beginning of a couple years of Saturn Uranus square. Yes, and we've only got about ten days of just Saturn and Aquarius before it's Mars and Saturn in Aquarius. <laughs> so the. Like there, there. My guess is that feeling of relief, that outbreath, will last exactly nine days. <laughs> um, a and week then it'll or so. Be, and then um, there's just there's a lot of pressure almost immediately on Aquarius. Mm. 
Yeah, but, but I you mean, know, in terms of the Exodus, you did mention the Exodus from cardinal signs for the the cardinal sign heavy people. That might still be an outbreath. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, you're right. But it's uh, very different for well, cardinals. You, yeah. No, you're right. That that outbreath la- probably lasts until the beginning of July. Um, yeah. And so right. there are some new folks who are going to suck in uh, the breath. breath very quickly <laughs> yeah. and sharply, like like myself. You know, having planets in early fixed and uh, angles in late cardinal um, makes this uh, somewhat less inspiring. Um, for you, but, but I yes. understand that there will <laughs> there are a number of people who will be on on one side or another. But having having something at twenty eight nine Capricorn into Aquarius, I'm just sort of like, okay, we'll do that version of it now. We'll do all the things. Well, and and I think. Uh, oh, sorry, go ahead, Chris. Uh, no, go ahead. I was going to say the the shift into Aquarius, yeah, it's huge. We are also in a situation where we're having Mars Saturn kind of co-presence doubled up because we've had Mars and Saturn together in Capricorn and then we're going to have Mars and Saturn in Aquarius. So we're sort of getting two lots of that six weeks instead of the usual one. Um, and I think it is a bit of a rough or bumpy landing with Saturn coming into Aquarius and Mars following suit. Um, so I think the Saturn in Aquarius three months that we're coming up to, the first part has got Mars there with Saturn and then we just get the pure Saturn in Aquarius. So if you are more of a heavy sort of fixed sign, uh, you know, the first part could be a little bit more challenging. Later in the year, it'll be Saturn and Jupiter together rather than Saturn and Mars together in Aquarius. So it sort of feels like you might have, yeah, some frustration, things might boil over, you might realize there's stuff that has been neglected that you now have to play catch up on real quick. Um, but there's value potentially in in maybe doing that uh, because, you know, at the end of the, the year, light at the end of the tunnel type of thing, the Jupiter Saturn piece um, brings a different quality in, if that makes sense. Definitely. Yeah. So this is setting up and let me mention the Mars date again because we talked about Saturn. So Saturn goes in on the 21st of March into Aquarius, and then Mars catches up and it goes in on the 30th of March so that you get both of them. And then we have an exact Mars-Saturn conjunction at zero degrees of Aquarius at the very, very end of the month. It looks like March 31st, which maybe is already um, April 1st for some people, depending on what part of the world you're in. Mm-hmm. So um, that's queuing up Saturn in Aquarius, which is a major long-term transit that everybody's going to be experiencing for the next uh, three years. But it's curious that it starts off at the very top of it with a Mars-Saturn conjunction. So I mean, to me, one of the ways I talked about it in the horoscopes was just think about what house, especially what whole sign house Aquarius falls in in your chart. And you're going to be experiencing a long-term transit of like restructuring in that area of your life as Saturn goes through in the next three years. And this is partially a preview of that because it's just going to dip in for what two or three months before it retrogrades out, goes back into Capricorn in early July, and then eventually returns permanently into Aquarius for the full-on transit in December. But it seems like whether you have a day chart or a night chart, the very start of this, this initial preview that begins in March might begin with some sort of um, tension or some even, uh, depending on how it's situated in your chart, even like a crisis which brings up the issues perhaps in some instances even in dramatic ways that then will have to play out and be dealt with over the course of the next two to three years as Saturn continues moving through the rest of that sign. 
Yeah, I, I agree strongly with that. The way um, it was playing out in my head is that it's almost like in that it's a <clears throat> in that Saturn's ingress is a preview. That preview begins with <sighs> with the the vision of a of a troubled timeline. Um, I'm thinking like uh, like the old Terminator movies, right? Where you're like, oh god, if I don't do this in the second quarter then I'll end up in the bad timeline when Saturn actually goes back into Aquarius at the end of the year and next year. There's a little bit of a like, like a few of averting a future crisis um, with that, uh, with that initial co-presence of Mars and Saturn. Like, Oh, this is where things are going. Um, you know, mm. if I don't do anything, that's probably where they're going. But there's, you know, there's time enough to to change that. We just have to keep John Connor alive. You're thinking about the future war like version of Terminator, where there's like lasers and desolate like hellscape uh, in the future. If you don't avert things and like save the future savior of humanity, right? Well, that's the um, you know that that the plot right is that the. Um, the uh, the survivors in that bleak future send someone back in time to seed a better timeline, right? Mm. And then the you know the the evil robots also send an agent. Um, you know, as far as um, Mars Saturn, as far as just sort of coming up with images for Mars Saturn conjunctions in Aquarius, I think evil robots from the future is pretty good. <laughs> Right. So Mars is like the, in this analogy from, let's say, Terminator 2 is like the T 1000 who's been sent uh, back in time, ahead of time. The bad guys send the bad guy first, and he may do a little bit of damage as he's going through this initial part of Aquarius. But then later in December, we get Jupiter, who in this analogy is going to be played by the positive robot of Arnold Schwarzenegger circa uh, Terminator 2 to save yeah. the protagonist or hero. Yeah, 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 exactly. Okay. So this is so um so the the second quarter is Terminator 1 and <laughs> then if we if we survive Terminator 1, which we probably will, then we get to Terminator 2, which is arguably the best one. Um yeah. but there will be liquid metal assassins, but we'll deal with that then. Yeah. Definitely. Was that a similar analogy that you had in, in mind, Kelly? Oh, yeah. I was, I'm was. i such a Terminator fan that I'm so familiar with all of these analogies. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. No, that wasn't probably my analogy, but I think I've, I've got the gist of it. You know, okay. more stressful now, better later on. <laughs> what uh, what well, analogy the, the point was that might be less bro-friendly? Having the foresight, right. Terminator yeah. is for everybody. <laughs> how would you? How would you? Or how have you been explaining this to clients, uh, Kelly, in terms of this Mars ingress in like March, March April timeframe? Because this is a two month trek of Mars. It's not just a. It's it's relatively quick in the grand scheme of things compared to the three year Saturn transit. But Mars goes in at the end of March, and then it stays there for a couple of months, right? Yeah, I think it'll be a solid six weeks until yeah, it's like right dead center of May, I believe that yeah, it switches. That it switches. How have you been explaining this to clients in terms of I don't know, Mars's yeah, transit I through mean, that side? It, it feels like um that sense of I like I mean, I think that the the concept you guys are using is similar to what I've been saying, which is it feels bumpy or like a rude awakening or you know, there's more work to be done here than you thought. 
Um, particularly as I think you were saying earlier in the show today, Chris, or Austin, I can't remember exactly who said, but the idea that Aquarius hasn't had a huge amount going on other than, you know, the eclipses and then that brief Mars retro. So this is sort of a part of our our chart or our lives that has been necessarily perhaps neglected or lower on the priority list, lower on the attention list. And then all of a sudden something catches fire and you're like, I've forgotten all about this stack of books over there perhaps. And uh, I need to leave other things and come to attend to this with, with a level of urgency because there is going to be that Mars square Uranus aspect. You know, that's a preview, not the um, same thing, but you know, that'll be, we'll talk about that in the April show. Um, mm-hmm. But that is sort of a, this is, as Austin saying, this is a setup for what we're going to be dealing with in 2021 when we get the Saturn square Uranus. That's yeah, a great and point. And so that reminds me of the, so Austin's comment about an ex, exodus from the cardinal sign of Capricorn also applies to Uranus, who's been transiting through that cardinal sign of Aries for most of the last decade, but now is finally out of there, but is also shifted to a fixed sign. So this is part of a broader sort of planetary shift to fixed signs that's going on as a major um, characteristic of this time frame for the past year, but also in the next few years. Yeah, yeah. The um, well, and so two things. One, there there was a fair amount of Aquarian emphasis as well as Uranus and Taurus emphasis for about half of 2018. There was fixed sign tension in in sort of middle-ish half made well made a made a November of 2019. Um, but then 2019 didn't really have much for fixed sign emphasis other than Uranus in Taurus, whereas. Um, the the Saturn Mars ingress um, speaks to a very strong fixed sign uh, emphasis um, next year, and there was something else I was going to say. Oh, um, just with that Mars Saturn and the evil robots from the future and all that, that Mars Saturn configuration starts out uh, about as fierce as it's going to get. Um, yeah, Mars right. conjoins Saturn, squares Uranus, and then doesn't do anything nearly that interesting for the rest of the time that it's in Aquarius. Yeah. Um, and so even if that, even if the end of the month, you know, even if March, March goes out like a lion, um, there's still plenty, uh, there, 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 there will be time, there will be calmer time to work through those problems. It's not going to be that hectic throughout all of April. Right. Uh, so that, and that Mars transit, it goes through Aquarius all the way until about the middle of May. So that's the full duration of that. And I think, so much for whether you have a day chart or a night chart, it's just um, bringing up some of the problems that people might have to deal with in that area of their life. Or to use the analogy from last month that people liked a little bit, the Mars Saturn conjunction being like uh, you know pressing the gas in your car and the brakes at the same time, and having that inherent tension in that part of your life between wanting to move forward and then. Also wanting to stop and like not move forward, and that tension creating a challenge, but eventually maybe also creating some sort of constructive um, obstacle that you overcome, hopefully as well. Yeah, it's it feels a little bit like you know Saturn's just moved into Aquarius, so you're just starting to think about what do I have to do to get this part of my life or this area sorted, and then nine days later, as you said, Austin, Mars is here, and it's all of a sudden you get impatient. But the Mars Saturn piece to me, it feels very much like banging your head against a brick wall. Like I'm just I'm trying to do it, but I can't do it yet. Or there's this 
bureaucracy or this delay or this pre- this preparation required to do the thing and I didn't even know I had to do the same thing so I certainly haven't done the preparation um, and it's just a little bit of that frustration of maybe juggling different timelines the more immediate of Mars versus the longer term of Saturn and trying to figure out what you're meant to do in in what order and I, I think it it just feels a little bit like that last week of last few days of March first few days of April it's just like trying to get your head around this whole different thing. And then, as you said, Austin, you settle into it, the aspects calm down and you you find your way forward, but with a little bit of um, like after the initial stress. Mm-hmm. I think that um, one of the ways that, the, that both Saturn's ingress and especially Mars's uh, follow-up ingress into Aquarius will play out for people is um, questions about should I keep doing this, whatever this is, whatever, you know, whatever house, whether it's like in the fourth, should I keep living here or seventh? Should I keep, you know, should we keep trying to do this relationship or 10th? Should I keep doing this job? There, uh, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of leaving what is not useful behind symbolism that clusters around the beginning of Aquarius. Um, you know, sometimes the answer is this. Sometimes the answer to the problem is why am I putting myself in, in the situation repeatedly where I even have to answer this question? Um, and with Mars Saturn um, at the end of the month, it's not, you know, the, I think there'll be more feelings of like, fuck this, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, and that's not necessarily, that may or may not be the answer, but. Um, the, you know, the frustration and fire of those moments may, may lead that to be an option for a lot of people in different areas of life. Cause there's, yeah. you know, if one we, of the other, maybe go ahead. One of the other themes also is just going to be the unending, unyielding advancement of time and, um, people starting to come to a different understanding of time as it moves into a new sector of their chart and what the advancement of time means in that part of your life. Because mm-hmm. um, one of the things I'm excited about is one, this is the beginning of the end of the Saturn return stage for those that have Saturn and Capricorn. Like we are actually getting into the end game or the final stages of your Saturn return. It won't finish completely until the second half and especially the end of 2020 and when does when Saturn firmly moves out of Capricorn, but we're starting to see some of those Saturn return stories become more clear that have been happening over the past two and a half years and starting to wrap up or, or become finalized in some ways, um, which actually was really interesting because there was an astrologer who sent me like a five-minute video of his sort of Saturn return story named um, Alexander Weir, and it sort of gave me the idea where I want to do the Saturn in Capricorn recap, especially the Saturn return stories. And I'd love to see if people wanted to record just like a short five-minute video. It has to be just five minutes because otherwise it's going to be too long of their Saturn return story. I'd love to see and maybe feature some of those on a future episode of the podcast. Uh, But the other thing that of course is going to be starting is Saturn going into Aquarius is the beginning of the Saturn return phase for anybody that was born with Saturn in Aquarius natally. So we're going to get a whole new slew of Saturn return stories and Saturn return transits that are going to be beginning starting on the 21st of March. Yeah, was it that's going to be the 92 to 94s roughly for the first yeah. return? Oh, gosh. Wow. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Kelly, I see you have the 1000 yard stare is <laughs> No, I'm just like 
my youngest sibling was born in 1990 and any mm. and she so she's just finishing her satin cap uh, return but you're talking about people younger than her that are then going into their satin return and that's just making me feel old <laughs> yeah yeah exactly so if you have your saturn in aquarius march 21st 2020 through march 7th 2023 those are your saturn return target dates whereas if you have Saturn in Capricorn, your target dates for your Saturn return were December 19th, 2017 through December 16th, 2020. Um, and then we do have an, uh, a listener who's in the Saturn cycle before, I guess. So this um, is oh, yeah. so the second. Yeah. Yeah, and there are yeah. probably some folks for that'll be hitting their third their third go around with Saturn and Aquarius. Yeah. But I'm glad you mentioned that, though, Kelly, because it's it's for everybody. Everyone's going to feel that to a little bit. Um, just the shift of time and the continued advancement of time, maybe in some area of their life. Um, but this is going to be one of those turning points where it seems like every time Saturn changes signs, we get a new stark um, step in the the forward mm. direction in terms of the advancement of time, and then reflect on that and get a different perspective on what that means and how far we've come in terms of some area of our life for for better or worse. Absolutely. Yeah. And even to think back where you were, you know, in that early 90s period, how old you were, last time Saturn was in Aquarius, what was that like for you? Uh so even that if you're not Saturn returning just using that Saturn 30-year cycle. Right. Yeah. Definitely. So um, that's great. So that's passage major time, major stuff. The passage of time, major stuff happening towards the end of this month. Um, might be a little tension accompanying it, especially during the early parts. But hopefully, some of that will subside once we move further into April and the Mars Saturn conjunction at least starts to separate. And uh, especially once Mars clears also Uranus, since that's the other thing that happens. But that's getting us a little bit too far into the forecast for April. Now, did we forget so, one thing? Yeah, we did. We forgot we, that Jupiter. Well, we didn't forget it. We just um, it, it was standing in line behind the behind. Saturn Mars ingress. Um, we have uh, Jupiter and Pluto conjoining more or less, pre or rather, pre rather closely while those ingresses are taking place, and that is that is the first of three conjunctions yeah. between Jupiter and Pluto. So, Kelly, yes. you've been doing some thinking on this, yeah. Well, I guess I've just been, you know, a little focused on the royal dramas and and looking at that. But I know that that Jupiter Pluto is technically going to be exact in early April. Yeah, um, it's building say, in the end of March. They're, they're, I just, they're, yeah, they're they're in the same degree at the end of That's March. That's true. You're right. You're 100 percent right because it'll be um, almost 10 days that they're there. Um, so I do think that Jupiter Pluto. I mean. And look at the difference in Capricorn, the sign of Capricorn, by the time we get to April. Like there's just Jupiter and Pluto and the south node's still there but well separated. Um, but I do think this Jupiter-Pluto piece is there's something about foundational uh, ideas and beliefs, like the bedrock stuff that you might not even realize you've based part of your life on is being activated. And you just keep watching Meghan Markle and Queen Elizabeth because this is an angular degree for them. So their their changes, you know, changes to long established uh, ways of doing things, 
Um, and I think there's a micro version of that for each of us based on the house that this conjunction is happening in. Um, as if, you know, you're trying to find your way there now that the pressure of Saturn being there is is gone, essentially. But mm. you, you, you're well, excited about this one too, Austin. Yeah. Um, or maybe yeah, not excited. Uh, intrigued. I might get excited. We'll, we'll see. Uh, I'm excited. I'm I'm uh yeah I'm 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 very interested in the second half of March. There's so many there's so many things that happen of um m- both momentary and lasting import. Um you know one thing that's interesting is that you know that Jupiter that Jupiter Pluto conjunction it's in a Saturn ruled sign and so mm. we're going to see the the winds generated um by Saturn's uh, Saturn's uh, ingress into a new sign affecting what that Jupiter Pluto conjunction feels like, you know, and if we're, you know, it, it, I, I think that the, the paradigmatic note that you brought up with Jupiter and Pluto, like not yeah. just, not what are you thinking, but how do, what is the process? What is the structure by which you're even arriving at those thoughts? What is the process that creates those ideas, right? What are the underlying assumptions are, um, you know, even more likely to be challenged um, in maybe a good way, maybe a bad way, maybe a little bit of both um, by Saturn's ingress into Aquarius, right? Because Saturn uh, Saturn is equally or similarly strong in Aquarius uh, yes. as it is in Capricorn, but Saturn Aquarius is the Saturn of it's the, it's looking at things from the outside or being stuck on the outside rather than Saturn and Capricorn, which is being stuck on the inside. Yes. Right? You know, it's Saturn Aquarius is a little bit of face pressed up against the window, and Saturn and Capricorn is a little bit like being locked in the labyrinth. Um, mm. And, you know, both both provide abundant opportunities for Saturnian feels, um, but um, and in relationship to structure, but, um, you know, for different reasons. And it's a... You know, it's uh, they're 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 the two they're the two sides of the grass is greener, right? Like, oh, I'm stuck in here. I wish I could go outside, or oh, I'm stuck outside. It's cold out here. I wish I could get in. Yeah, it's it's the it's the limitations of being included or on the inside versus the restriction of not being able to get in when you want to. Mm Hmm. Yeah. And yeah. there is and something of, sorry, go. No, you please continue. I, I was just gonna say with the Jupiter Pluto, there is something about, you know, how hard do you want to double down on the things that are important to you or not important to you? And I, I, one of the things I think with this Jupiter Pluto is we're not always aware why we do things. We're not always aware why we're going after X, Y, or Z, whether it's a, a business goal or a personal goal, you know, we think we know, but sometimes there's there's undercurrent stuff or there's stuff that we haven't fully got in touch with. And the Jupiter Pluto is a little bit of mm-hmm. like, well, how can you get into that underlying deeper motivation or desire? And then is that still really important to you? Or are you actually trying to access that or are you trying to meet that need in an appropriate way or have you sort of gotten muddled? Um, so there's something mm-hmm. there that they're trying to get you to get clear on the why that you might be doing things. Yeah, uh, I would also add uh, that's really interesting. I would also add that um, with Jupiter Pluto, you know, Pluto tends to turn planets inside out and show them 
their shadows or angle the mirrors to see themselves from a from a new angle um there there's a little bit of like the shadow of your wisdom like mm-hmm. what you think is wisdom what is that leaving out right what is that not taking into account what um you know if if that wisdom is uh is a torch or a lantern or a source of illumination with the angle you hold it at, what isn't being seen, right? What is the the underworld of that, right? What's in the shadows there? And maybe, you know, wrapping that, bending that light so it gets to some of those places and you can see what tends to get ignored. Mm. What's been overlooked? Yeah, I just like the idea that uh, with the departure departure of Mars and Saturn through that sign, leaving just Jupiter and Pluto, we have a more rapid expansion uh, in that sign for at least a few months. Where um, after a more turbulent, challenging, or even period of tension, where we've got a little bit of relief going on for those with heavy Capricorn placements or cardinal signs prominent in their chart. Yeah, yeah, that'll be. Um... That that'll be a blessing. It's a significant <laughs> a blessing, change of the landscape. Yeah, it'll it'll be a nice relief uh, for the second quarter for the uh, the late the late cardinal heavy. So we Kelly just pointed out to me privately that we mentioned to and have overlooked the other lunation this month, which is the new moon that takes place in Aries uh, on the twenty fourth of March. Yeah, I figured we should probably mention it. But there is, I mean, there's so much, as you mentioned, Austin, this latter part of March is is quite interesting with so many other dramatic events happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's not in of itself hugely important or momentous in terms of dimension since there's everything going on around it that we've already mentioned is basically the backdrop for that lunation. Which is probably, I mean, to give you the context of how significant is the lunation this month, it's it's happening, but there's other things that are probably going to draw your attention. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it is, it's kind of like a, a starting, you know, the new moon in Aries ha- does have um, symbolic significance with that idea of the new moon and the spring energy and, and bringing into some of the different cultural and religious festivals of the new year type of thing. Yeah, and just the general themes that we encounter around this time of every year of uh, new moon, especially in a modern astrology context of laying the seeds or the foundation in this part of your chart and the house that it falls in for something that will grow and develop over the course of the next six months until eventually in the fall we get a full moon in Aries and some of that comes to a culmination. So, yes. uh, Drew, and it's Drew, also it's Drew in the chat's asking if we have any thoughts on this being at the bending since it's pretty closely square the nodes. Well, so, um, the bendings being the square points to the nodal axis, we have the, the north bending and the south bending, right? And for those who aren't familiar with them, uh, the bendings are the points points where the moon starts get stops getting stops cha- uh, stops uh, getting either higher or lower in declination or sort of distance from the ecliptic and bends in the other direction. And so in this case, um, it's been getting the moon has been getting lower uh, or more uh, more southerly, and then it bends and starts coming up. And so those points. Uh, are interesting in terms of the moon's motion, right? Because instead of having a moon 
sinking or rising, it you know it does a little does a little swoop, right, and then reverses that motion. And so there's often a little uh, there's a little bit of confusion um, is often the state that accompanies the moon's movement through those points because um, although the moon is still moving counterclockwise, the the up the you know the the y axis is changing. Um, <clears throat> not the x-axis, but the y-axis. And so there's there's usually uh, there, there's a little bit more to figure out because there there is a directional shift. and that happens um, you know uh, that happens once a month in terms of south bending and north bending one each. Um, but this is this is interesting because it's an it's a new moon. you know, it's one of our two lunations um, occurring on the bendings. Um, and so that new moon and that sort of, coming back to neutral, right? Slowing down, letting go of the last lunar month and kind of slowly starting to fill up with what the next lunar month will, um, will entail, um, is a little bit more of a, it's a, it's more of a complicated shift than it otherwise would be, um, according to the new moon occurring on the bendings. And that's in perfect accord, I think, with everything we've been saying about that last 10 days of the month, right? There's going to, there's a lot of, there's a lot more new factors to take into account. So there may be a little bit, the, the hmm that usually accompanies a new moon is likely to be extended. Yeah. I would just say when I look at the bendings, especially from a transiting lunation standpoint, I'm mainly looking at this as being the halfway point between eclipses mm -hmm. because we had that set of cardinal eclipses um, in December, January, and then we're going to have another set uh, six months after that over the summer um, in the last set of cardinal eclipses. So this is the halfway point where we get a lunation or a set of lunations in the middle cardinal sign, and so it ends up acting like the waxing square or the waning square, which is that important midway point where whatever the set of events was that occurred um, three months earlier at the previous set of eclipses in December, January, we see a further development of that and an important turning point here with this lunation at the bendings. And then that eventually comes to completion or culmination three months later at the next set of eclipses. So it's the halfway point between eclipses is how I would characterize this. Mm -hmm. Right. And that, that's, that's a function of the sun being at the bendings. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. All right. Um, anything else about that lunation from your perspective, Kelly? No, I think the points you that um, you both made, particularly Austin, about the idea of the instability or the adjustment, the changing focus, is is really appropriate um, for a new moon in the bendings. And then I agree completely with what you're saying about how that just reflects or echoes the themes that are already happening in this latter part of March. Yeah. Yeah. It. Um... Yeah, it goes right into that soup. Although we're kind of done with soup by the end of the month. Oh, there's no it's more really, soup. <laughs> it's really, it's like in March is in like soup and out like a lion, maybe. <laughs> if that's a thing. Um, I mean, I don't know. Do I people just thought of roast, say like roast something with this Aries. I don't know why I thought about roasting meat or veggies. That works. Do, do people not, did you not grow up with that saying, Kelly, the uh, March comes in like a lion and out like a lamb? Yes, I definitely know that saying. Yes. Okay. I don't, I don't know how widespread that was. So yeah, this time the lion's at the end and it's soup at the beginning. At the start. Or perhaps a, a, 
a, a, a thick but runny stew. <laughs> okay, this is getting bad. <laughs> All right, so bad. We, um... I like a good stew. I love a good stew as well. Um, we grew up on this thing. So when we were kids, you know, I was, you know, from a large family, it was always like, what are we eating for dinner? Someone was always asking this. And of course, all of our, you know, parents and aunts were like, just we're eating, I don't know, wombat stew or echidna soup or something. And we ended up having this dish called wolf stew that was just like made with beef and vegetables, but we still call it today this wolf stew. And it's just like a very simple beef casserole, but- Somebody must have at some point in the history of the family called it wolf stew. So huh. the madness that, that happens in crazy families. <laughs> well, stew, I mean, stew is an efficient way to cook for a lot of people. We ate a lot of dishes like that. Yes. For that very reason. It's time efficient. It's economical. And uh, yeah, you can get it done and get everyone fed. And then my brothers would always end up with the seconds. So anyway trip down memory lane. <laughs> All right. Well, hashtag astrology stew for uh, part of the month of March, first part of March of the month. Uh, so one of the things that's funny since we started just a few months ago doing the forecast episode first is now we're extending our forecast and doing like really long detailed monthly forecasts and we're about an hour and a half into this episode. Um, so we need to transition. I want to introduce and talk about the election for March, the auspicious electional Date that was picked out by um, our expert electional astrologer Lisa Scheim, and then we'll transition into our our discussion topic for uh, the second part of this episode, or the last part of this episode, which is essential dignities. So, okay. um, the electional chart that Lisa found this month takes advantage of the lovely transit of Venus through Taurus, where we're able to get a really good Venus election this month. Um, because Venus is, as we said, in her home sign or one of her home signs of Taurus. Um, and so the electional chart for this month is set for March 22nd. Uh, we, in our location, we set it for approximately 9 10 a.m. or 9 10 in the morning here in Denver, Colorado. So all you have to do is take this chart for this day and time. So March 22nd, just a little bit about after nine o'clock in the morning. Just change the location and set it for your city, and then you should get approximately the same rising sign. And all you want to do is adjust the degree until you have around, let's say, between 18 and 21 degrees of Taurus as the exact degree of the ascendant. So if you do that, you'll end up with a chart that has Taurus rising and Venus pretty closely conjunct within a few degrees, the degree of the ascendant at 18 degrees of Taurus. And Venus at 18 Taurus is actually applying to a trine uh, with Jupiter, which is at 23 degrees of Capricorn in the ninth whole sign house. So what we have here is the ruler of the ascendant being Venus applying to a nice little trine with Jupiter in a day chart, which really helps to um, stabilize and affirm whatever Venus wants to signify. And since Venus is the ruler of the ascendant, Venus is representing you and whatever you're initiating at the time of this electional chart. So it should be helpful in helping to confirm and stabilize the outcome of whatever it is that you're trying to initialize or actualize at this time. So the other thing this chart features is the moon at 13 degrees of Pisces in the 11th whole sign house, applying to a sextile with Venus. Um, and so applying to a sextile with Venus and applying to a sextile with Jupiter. 
Mercury is also direct, which is nice because we had a hard time last month avoiding electional charts during the Mercury retrograde. But since Mercury is moving forward at this point, we don't have to deal with that. This is the first chart since the ingress of Saturn into Aquarius, so it does place Saturn in the 10th whole sign house, although it's in a day chart and Saturn's in its own domicile, so it's actually relatively auspicious as a 10th house significator in the long term, or at least relatively constructive. Um, Mars is conjunct Jupiter, but it's separating, and Mars, although it's getting close to Saturn, it's still far enough away, it's five or six degrees away, that it's not in that tight tight conjunction that we'll see closer towards the end of the month. So that's one of the reasons we decided to go with this election rather than a later one, just because um, Mars has a, a little bit of distance from Saturn before it really catches up to it in that close conjunction. So yeah, this is this is the election, Austin, and this kind of tied in with some of the things you were seeing about trying to get a, take advantage of not just Venus and Taurus, but also that nice Venus-Jupiter trine, which even though it goes mm-hmm. exact a little bit later in the month, you start running into issues with Mars getting really close to Saturn at that point. So we were trying to find a middle ground to get the Venus-Jupiter trine to some extent still, but not get Mars too close to that conjunction with Saturn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I, I see the effort. Yeah, yeah. and uh, so, I, I know I, 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 I scan this period of time pretty heavily. Yeah, um, so I know what was happening a week before and a week after, and why you chose this one. So one kind of fun note about this is depend. Well, I guess it really depends on the time zone. I was going to say for for some people, you might be able. This will be the hour of Venus. Um, mm-hmm. Which is fun if you're going to have a Taurus rising with Venus on it. It's the day, the second hour on the day of the sun is going to be our Venus. Probably our Mercury for you might be, might even be Moon. Anyway, but yeah, yeah. I wish, uh, I wish the Moon was a little more, had a little bit more light. But everything else is, uh, is there to like there. The uh, oh, yeah. you know Moon not only what. Yeah, we've got a waning, uh, waning uh, moon. Also, Good point. It's not um, like burning, right? It's not. It's not within a day's motion of the sun, so at least it at least has some light. Um, mm-hmm. One thing that's nice about that moon, uh, that moon Venus, is we have um, uh, we have some some reception there by exaltation, right? Venus mm-hmm. is exalted in Pisces, where the moon is, and the moon is exalted in Taurus, where Venus is. So it's not it's not just a sextile, right? It's it's yeah, it's a beautiful moon aspect, but I it is always nice if the moon is a little bit bigger. But you know, perfection is what we aspire to, not what we deal with every day, right? Yeah, so this is a good Venus election. Um, generally speaking, good for aesthetics, could be good for creative pursuits or artistic pursuits. Generally, if you're trying to unify or reconcile anything as very broad archetypal keywords for Venus, then it's going to be useful for that. Um, what are some other good Venus-type electional activities that one could use this for? If you wanted to really like specify Venus I significations. Mean- well, I was just thinking, I know we often are a little nervous, you know, with Mars in a day chart and things like that, but you you kind of have the Lord of the first and the Lord of the seventh um, in a trine angle. Jupiter's in the mix as well, but, mm. you know, something about other people, whether it's a friendship 11th thing or just people, you know, 
pulling together some significant people, um, like the idea of feeding people or spending quality time with people. Yeah, yeah that's a good, my, good point. With that Saturn up there in the 10th, um, trying to pull that into the Venusian direction in a good way, um, organizing a social thing. Yeah. Or, you know, because um, we have more Venus, but also Saturn. It's going to be hard to ignore Saturn here. And so figuring out a place for that Saturn to go, like or, like uh, like organization or structure, seems like a, a useful thing you could do. But uh, Kelly, I like that. That's a good eye there. I like that um, the configuration of the rulers of the first and seventh, uh, are, they're pretty happily disposed towards one another. It's not a bad you- thing for that. But to your point, Austin, I mean, this makes me feel like, oh, it's a team building day for work or something. It's where mm. you potentially with work colleagues, but maybe doing something more fun rather than you know, like doing the Venus thing. Uh, maybe you all right, go to like, a cooking wow. class together or something. Yeah. Like I enjoyed the lame work thing way more than I thought I would. Yeah. Yeah. Because there were fun people there, basically. But it is, it's, you, you kind of have, you want to take advantage of that Venus trying Jupiter aspect because it's like the nicest aspect yeah. from that perspective we're going to get. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, yeah, it's very 11th house focused chart. So good for 11th house stuff, not bad for 7th house stuff. So just generally other people with Saturn in the 10th, especially if you put on the midheaven, there may be some challenges or difficulties in terms of 10th um, house reputation or work or action type things initially. But in the long term, since it's a day chart, it will probably work out constructively as long as you stick with it. Um, but this was just one of the actual electional charts that we found this month. This is the one we wanted to feature, uh, but we did find um, three or four other electional charts that I'm just about to release in the Auspicious Elections podcast this month, which is available for subscribers that sign up through our page on Patreon. And we've got like a 45-minute podcast episode where we re- review all four charts and what they're they're good for. So you can find out more information about that if you just look us up on patreon.com and search for the Astrology Podcast. And it's available on the $5 tier as well as the tiers above that. All right. Uh, so thanks to Lisa Scheim for picking out that election for this month. Um, and I think that concludes the forecast section of this episode. So now we were going to transition into talking about other miscellaneous topics that have come up in the astrological community over the course of the past month since we last talked. Um, and there's really just one main topic that we came up with, um, which is like a lot of people have been talking about and has been a major thing, which has been this discussion surrounding um, essential dignity that's really become prominent over the course of the past few weeks. Uh, I noticed, especially among some of the younger astrologers that were just getting into this for the first time. Did you guys? How much have you guys been following this whole thing? Um, barely at all. I, I believe this is going under the hashtag Dignity Babes. Yeah. Um, so I I became aware of it when I saw I I, I logged into my Twitter and I saw that. Chris Brennan had been dubbed an honorary dignity babe, um, okay. and I was intrigued. But I, I, I would like, say I still this? do not understand. Yeah, what was happening? Yeah, I didn't uh, see the initial. Um, or maybe I caught a clip of something on Instagram, which I think was the the trigger, and uh, didn't didn't get the whole piece but was aware of it and then seeing the dignity babes which i guess is like a response to that which i thought was a really constructive way 
are for okay. them. And we should probably should talk about who the Dignity Babes are or what, what they're attempting to do. Or do you want to put even more backstory in, Chris? Well, I, sure. I don't really know what happened. So if you could explain it to me and the audience simultaneously, that would be great. So I can participate. Go for it, Chris. I know you've, you've got uh, sure. you're across so I it. I didn't follow it as closely as some and was not like super engaged because I had other stuff going on this month. But the genesis of it was there was a, a astrologer named Colin Bedell um, who did a few videos on Instagram, which was just like a little quick. He does regular um, Instagram posts like every day or every few days with um, various things that he's thinking about. Um, and that's at, at Queer Cosmos. And he did kind of like initially. I think it was just like a hot take where he did a very short, like a minute and a half video where he'd been getting some feedback recently where he was seeing people in his comments on Instagram um, lamenting or feeling bad about having supposedly, quote unquote, like bad placements when they had planets that were in the signs that traditionally were supposed to be challenging or negative or, or terrible, which is like the signs of, let's say, fall or um, detriment. And so he did kind of a short, somewhat um, what became, for some people at least, controversial series of videos calling that out and just rejecting the concept of essential dignity altogether, specifically saying that exaltation, he said, he said, exaltation and detriment and fall is bullshit. And his primary argument was that he's seen, he said, beautiful expressions of those placements. And he was mainly approaching it from a modern character-based standpoint. Um, so his fundamental issue was that people were feeling bad when they heard that certain placements were supposed to be more negative or challenging in their birth chart. And his argument or his statement essentially was that every single natal configuration has something beautiful to offer. So he doesn't, and he doesn't think that you should talk. He basically told his audience that he doesn't think you should talk to astrologers who make you feel less empowered since a large part of his astrology is trying to be more empowering, which is a, is a common theme in modern astrology over the past few decades, and a certainly, a cer especially certain streams, I think, right? Would you say that's an accurate statement to make? Yeah, I don't think you'd get much argument. Yeah, I mean, well, and that was something I was thinking about as I was reflecting on that is so much of modern astrology and the direction that it went over the past few decades as it became more psychological and as people were also trying to speak to a broader audience was attempting to be empowering and sometimes changing the techniques of astrology based on wanting to be empowering and not wanting to bum people out. And especially over the past couple of years, because you guys have been doing this for much longer than I have, um, as I started to do some of the horoscopes, like monthly video horoscopes or the yearly horoscopes, you do genuinely run into that issue, which is what do you do when you run into seeing like a, dic a difficult configuration? And how do you describe that to people and convey that there might be some challenges coming up without freaking people out or making them feel bad or something like that? And sometimes I feel like the way that modern astrology grew and developed in the late 20th and early 21st century was so much a reaction to not wanting to bum people out and starting to remove certain language and certain concepts that were perceived as doing that, um, like benefic and malefic, for example, as a concept, but even the concept of essential dignity to some extent as well. Do you guys run into that? Yeah, or it's kind of with funny. That? Yeah, well, um, the struggle is real. 
Um, and I would say that the struggle is between being truthful and compassionate, both of which are important. Um, not every experience is going to be empowering and awesome. It's not, um, you know, there's not like a, a flat smiley face uh, that you don't, you can't just stamp a smiley face over every period of life without becoming very dishonest or, uh, or just um, life losing all texture. One thing I would say, I think that the, the use of the word beautiful is really interesting. Um, and I would, I would agree with that statement that every single natal configuration has something beautiful has a beautiful potential but beautiful and fortunate are not the same thing. Sure. Well, or that there can be positive manifestations of of even supposedly like difficult placements. Um, yeah. I mean, a lot of times beauty arises out of difficulty, struggle, failure, et cetera, et cetera. Like that's half the soil for those flowers. Um, and but and just because something is can be beautiful or provides the opportunity for a beautiful expression doesn't mean that it's not all of the, you know, all of, uh, it doesn't mean that there aren't difficulties or failures uh, there. Not that just having a planet in a particular essential dignity situation is enough to indicate failure, right? Yes. We have, like, we look at essential dignity. And when people are saying essential dignity, I don't see them looking at triplicities or bounds or decans, which is that's the that's the stack of essential dignity. We're not really doing the whole thing without that. And there's no there would be no judgment rendered about either character or life structure by um, a traditional astrologer without looking at aspects and mm -hmm. reception as well as house placement. Um, and so when you're just pulling out the top couple notes of essential dignity, um, I would say a person you shouldn't as an astrologer get super judgy about just that because that's not enough to render a judgment. Yeah, and that's like a, just a common thing and that's what so many people brought up and so much so much of the time when this critique happens it is modern astrologers picking out one piece of traditional astrology and then not knowing a lot about the system thinking that that we're making statements entirely just based on that that aren't Within the context of a broader system that does have a lot of other things going on and a lot of other shades of gray and considerations and things like that. So, additionally, he was approaching it primarily from a character based standpoint that these are all always character statements or like value judgments that are being made on a person's character, but that's often not the case either, necessarily. There's, yeah, what were you, you know, gonna that, say, Kelly? that fallen no, Saturn. I mean, I Oh, go ahead. So, I have so many thoughts on this topic, I guess. Yeah, let's hear your thoughts. I mean, I I agree because I think when somebody says a oh, Venus in Virgo or Venus in Aries is in detriment or bad, they're missing a huge part of the doctrine or a huge part of the technique, which is to consider, as you guys are saying, more than just the essential dignity of a planet. And it's the other piece that I maybe this is just a slight extrapolation of the specifics of what we're saying here. Somebody in the comment has mentioned this, and this is 
I was so passionate about this. I taught a course on this last year called Counseling Skills for Challenging Aspects, which basically looked at how we could find things that look really difficult in the birth chart according to the technical criteria, whether it, you know, all the levels of dignity, aspect, planetary condition, bringing all of that in. And then discussing the ways in which they, that, that what's the lived experience of that? Because to say that someone has Venus in Aries, therefore they're bad, is missing the point that one of the things we do in traditional astrology is we're much more specific than that. You know, if Venus in Aries is in a difficult configuration and in a house or what have you, if you get all the things that line up to this Venus looks like a bit of a a limited placement for a person, what are the exact topics that that speaks to for the individual? And that gives you an ability to describe things that have probably been very difficult or challenging for the person, which goes a long way to validating their actual lived experience. But then you can build out from there as to how we want to manage or, um, how we want to you know manage that moving forward and there's so many examples of people who when they learn that a planet might be restricted in some way according to a traditional collection of of definitions they then know oh you know and I think about a girlfriend of mine who um has some difficult configurations around the 5th house that made it hard for her to conceive naturally and based on her own life circumstances. And instead she decided that she would go ahead with things like IVF and in vitro and things like that. So sort of knowing that, you know, you don't want to cross, you don't want to close the door on something that could help you create something in your life that may not come together without a little bit of extra, of an extra boost. So I don't know if this is coming out clearly because I do have really strong thoughts about trying to make everything sound like it's a happy stamp when that's not most people's lived experiences. Yeah, definitely. And you're also talking about well, external events, and that's an important distinction to make here too, which is this is the stumbling block sometimes that modern astrologers run into when they start talking about traditional astrology is they don't understand sometimes that we're talking about like an attempt to describe the lived experience of the individual in some instances. And while there's a piece of that that is character-based, it's not always character-based. There's a part that's trying to describe what areas of life a person might have more challenges in versus what mm. areas of life they might be more fortunate due to external circumstances that they don't have control over. So your, your example there of, for example, somebody who has had challenges with getting pregnant and that's been an area of struggle or difficulty in her life that she's had to focus on or try to overcome. Yeah, I mean, because that is an external thing. It's not a character judgment, but it's very right. topic specific. There's nothing wrong with you. Um, this is actually someone who it's more by circumstance. They just didn't meet a person while there was a biological time window and decided to pursue that as an individual. Um, and so, yeah, it's not a character flaw. Um, and my the only response I posted publicly on social media to this discussion was just to list a bunch of people who have planets that are in detriment or in fall that are incredibly successful, and they've got other factors, um, accidental support coming in and things like that. But just having a planet in detriment or fall is not uh, it's not a barrier to you having a fulfilling life, basically. Yeah, nor nor is it a a searing indictment of your character. Nothing. Um, no. Yeah, I mean, it just well, and so to to 
to, just to speak to just to add one thing to the point you were making, Chris, about how the um, most of the history of astrology, the goal was to map the life and that the character was one part of the life, but not the totality right. of it. Um, <clears throat> more than half the chart is not just you. Like if yes. you want to find the just you part, it might be a couple planets or a couple houses, but just like in life, like m most of your life is not just you being you in a void. Um, it, you're mostly interacting with, with neighbors and family and friends and enemies and going to work and partnering up and breaking up. you like, it's all very contextual. And so most of the, the chart traditionally is devoted to mapping how all that goes. And so, you know, um, that, you know, that like super difficult Mars position, I'm just thinking of, um, readings I've done where it's like, oh yeah, that was your abusive father. Right. Yeah. That's why Mars doesn't look too good is that's what it's describing primarily. And that is an impactful part of uh, of a person's life. Mm -hmm. It's not a pretty part. But, you know, a lot of times those uh, the really rough placements like that's not you being a villain. That's that's that thing that happened or that pattern that you're trying to trying to solve. Yeah. And there's another comment by Lisa Scheim, who's in the chat. Uh, she says, so often astrologers who use particular concepts like this and astrologers who don't are critiquing them are actually talking about two different things, which has to be clarified before any authentic exchange about it can happen. This seems like a dynamic that recurs fairly frequently. And that's funny because that was my initial impression to that. And that was really the main tweet that I made about it early on was I was somewhat amused that all of the 20-something-year-old astrologers, how strongly they were reacting to it after he, because he released that video, but then he posted another follow up that was actually even more inflammatory. Um, but uh, what was funny about it to me is like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, this is actually really common where modern astrologers who hadn't really studied traditional astrology and didn't know much about it would often just like make hot takes explaining why traditional astrology was dumb based on the very little information they had about it. And that was a pretty common. Th Thing. And we used to have that was kind our, of the norm. That was the norm. That was the it standard. Was, it used like, to happen all the time. <laughs> yeah, it's like traditional astrology was the new minority, small viewpoint in the astrological community that was very much like nascent or, or growing. But what was so wild about seeing this in the past few weeks to me was seeing all of these younger astrologers who had come up over the past decade in, in a context where traditional astrology is no longer the not, I don't want to say not the minority viewpoint because it's still probably less. It's not the main viewpoint in terms of the astrological community, but it's we don't have those kinds of arguments because it's more understood that you need to study different systems before critiquing them. And there's a lot more depth and richness to the astrological tradition prior to the 20th century than you might know if you hadn't studied it. And so they were kind of shocked at. Uh, the critique and how it was being made. Um, additionally, because there was also some other stuff that was tacked into it in the second video where he started going on about saying that the essential dignity system was like um, had tinges of misogyny and it was an expression of the patriarchy and um, a bunch of other sort of concepts like that, which then seemed to be actually the main thing that um, really pushed some buttons for a lot of astrologers because then there was like a whole community of like queer or um, 
let's see, like non-binary or other astrologers that sort of spoke up at that at that point and said, "Hey, like I study traditional astrology and." And it's not okay to reject it just based on those grounds, or to re- reject something like essential dignities based on those grounds. And there's a lot more diversity and things going on in that community, and with that focus, than what you're representing here. And part of the discussion became about that, in addition to the other technical and philosophical and other issues surrounding essential dignity as well, that led to this really rich discussion. Especially uh, when over the course of the next few weeks, it seemed like there was a group of um, women or a group of astrologers that got together and created the this hashtag that was hashtag Dignity Babes, which was organized, um, I believe, primarily by the astrologers Joe Gleason, Diana Rose, Charm Torres, uh, Cello, Kelsey Rose Tortizi, and Aaron Tack Shipley, and they've been doing like this series where every few days they're dropping like a new. Discussion topic or series of discussion topics surrounding um, essential dignity as a concept, but also the philosophy underlying traditional astrology or ancient astrology in general, issues about learning astrology, content creation and consumption, as well as professionalism and reflections. And they're doing it like this whole series that they're still in the middle of releasing over the course of, uh, I think, the next week or two. And that's, I think, what hmm. you guys came across or started to see. Okay, yeah. that makes sense. So the, it was an attempt to uh, formulate a constructive response to what was maybe a social media thing. Got, yeah, I'm got glad you got that graphic and Chris. off point. Yeah. yeah, so here's the graphic they were circulating. It's mainly a discussion that was happening on Instagram with that hashtag Dignity Babes, but also something that's happening on Twitter as well. If you want to look up the hashtag there, I think they're only halfway through it because we're only at what the 23rd today. Twitter and Instagram, yeah, yeah. So there's a few more installments coming up, but it's also generated a lot of other discussion, not just among them, but it's just generated discussion among other people as well. Just in terms of some of the other issues that came up surrounding it. So, for example, um, there was a guy on Twitter, Phosphor Astrology, who tweeted at one point on February 13th. He said, "Retweet this if you're into Hellenistic astrology and identify as." LGBTQ plus, and then there was like 68 retweets, which is really interesting to me in terms of the diversity of the traditional community, where I could see how somebody could have the perception that it's just like straight white men doing traditional astrology, especially with people who help to get it going, like you know, Robert Hand or Robert Zoller or Robert Schmidt or whoever. Uh, but recently, it seems like it's become much broader than that, especially since some of the more well-recognized proponents are not always that. I mean, you have people like Demetra George and her books on traditional astrology. You have people like Lee Lehman and her work on traditional astrology, or even Ben Dykes and other people, you know, that are involved in that that movement and that community. So you're saying it's not just for straight white Roberts? <laughs> yeah, it turns out. While that may have been. Part of the initial impetus, which isn't even entirely true, because people like Lee Lehman were already doing important work in that area, and you already had the Lily revival coming out of people like um, Olivia Barclay, Olivia Barclay, you know Deborah Holding, um, and other early Li- Olivia or early Lily proponents. Um, yeah, that's certainly not the case today. No. Yeah. So um, other issues. 
surrounding that or other things that have come up in terms of just the general discussion of essential dignity. This is an ongoing thing. One of the things I want to say is just it's just a system that's used to characterize the quality of the expression of the planets. And I think that's one of the most fundamental things. And unfortunately, while while there are a set of terms or a set of terminology that's used as shorthand among professionals, it seems like there needs to be a distinction made between, um, yeah, sometimes when clients or when amateur astrologers hear shorthand terms from professionals that's like inside professional language that can freak them out and they could have a negative impression based on that. That doesn't mean that the terminology or the underlying concepts is inherently wrong or should be rejected or um, you know, gotten rid of in some way, because that happens in all traditions of astrology, even modern astrology, where sometimes you know, a non-astrologer will hear something like Mercury retrograde and then maybe react negatively to that or freak out based on whatever perceived negative thing they're hearing or associating with that in their not super educated um. Let's say background, so they'll like not go outside. Let's say in the most extreme manifestation, or not do anything important for three weeks, and that could be a perceived negative um, impact that the astrological language of that sort is having on clients. That doesn't mean you should re- reject it, or that that's the cr- even the correct interpretation or being used properly. It just means sometimes that happens, and it's something that as astrologers we have to do our best to try to work through. And help reassure and use language that's useful that's not freaking clients out. Yeah, and I think there was a, a, some points made about how um, the delivery of that information. Not everyone's going to get that right. We're not always all going to get that right. But that doesn't mean the technique that's being used is the problem. Sometimes, you know, if you overhear professionals talking, and I try and say this to students, I don't always remember because I don't always get it right, but. You know, the way that I might talk to a student in class or to a colleague is not necessarily the way that I would language or phrase the same thing if I was talking to a client, for instance. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the case for most astrologers, even modern astrologers. And that's a really important distinction because that's just like your your bedside manner is what doctors call that, right? Because it's just as easy. And we we run into the same issue in modern times with like people looking up their um Possible things on like WebM, WebMD, and then they see all these like advanced like medical terms and possible diagnoses, and just fall down a whole rabbit hole. Where not being doctors or or having a background in medicine or maybe having a tiny bit of knowledge becomes a dangerous thing, and they can like freak themselves out. That doesn't mean though that like WebMD or the ability to like access that that information even by amateurs should be like banned or outlawed or something just because it potentially could freak people out if they they go in the wrong direction with it it just means there is in the age of the internet where astrology is more accessible than ever um you know people are going to access things are going to come across things that they might not fully understand and that unfamiliarity could be scary a little bit but um yeah, it doesn't mean we have to like get rid of all of that just because it might freak somebody out. Yeah, well, I mean, you can't make you um, universal comfort can't be the filter for how we talk about anything, or else we can't talk about anything even vaguely uncomfortable for anyone. And I, I would just, yeah. in defense of uh, the judginess of some traditional astrology. 
Mm -hmm. um, there is no electional astrology without judginess. Um, you have to, you know, the whole point or one of the things that astrology teaches very well is that not, uh, is that time, uh, time is a landscape. It's textured. Mm. Um, there are, there are beautiful, sunny flower filled meadows. There are, you know, terrifying gorges, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that those landscapes are not all uh, are, are not all similarly favorable or unfavorable for the human. And so if you want to, you know, have things be successful, then you pick a time um, and a place to launch things that is favorable, right? And that essential dignity is one of the tool, one of the, one of the tools in the toolkit for figuring out when a time is favorable or unfavorable and to what degree. And that that's, that's just the whole sort of Y axis of not just which planets are flavoring this, but um, how happy are they? How well are they functioning? Um, and what's interesting is e even in the, the oldest of traditional metaphors, um, we're looking at the relationship between an entity or actor and their environment. Um, so mm. for example, you know, what we're saying, what we're saying with, you know, Mars in, in Capricorn, which we discussed this month, it's in a place where it's exalted, where it's, it's actually very easy for Mars um, to uh, like that environment brings the best out of that planet. Um, cancer brings the best out of Jupiter. Um, Jupiter is at home and therefore comfortable and empowered like we are when we're at home when it's in Sagittarius. Um, Venus isn't an awful person in Aries. Venus is in an environment which is really competitive and challenging and it's harder to bring about harmony, right? It, it's not... Um, <laughs> it's it's not a um it's not a searing indictment of character it's a it's a statement about um intended action and whether the environment supports or distorts or inhibits or exalts that right yeah i think the point that um we're all touching on was is just the idea that each planet is a piece of the person's entirety of their life or their experience rather than, you know, you can't sort of make an entire judgment about the individual off one part of the chart, if you like. Um, and the whole piece, I think the, the, the word judginess that you used, Austin, it, you know, we're trying to make assessments and discern and, and pass out where are the, you know, flower-filled meadows and what are the more, you know, rocky gorges and, how does that somehow describe lived experience around particular topics or in one of the areas that in my own consulting practice, I've just been able to be more, uh, I don't know, just more aware of or make better interpretations about has been the quality of an individual's physical body. And by that, that's got nothing to do with appearance, but in terms of things like uh, the condition of the ruler of the ascendant and does this indicate that there is a health condition or some sort of physical challenge that the person is dealing with. 
And that's been phenomenal to be able to share with people, you know, oh, it's a cardinal thing. Maybe it's, um, you know, it inflames and then it goes away or maybe it, you know, every few years something new pops up or it's a fixed thing and it's chronic, uh, you know, it's ongoing. So there, I guess for me, just knowing how much richness and extra levels of insight that it's added it's very hard for me to see, to see people say that it's bad, but then I realize, you know, you, you're missing some of the pieces and the nuances and the added bits that make it a complete technique when one part of the technique is what's being attacked, if you like. Right. Where part of the system is being attacked in isolation, which is always frustrating for astrologers in different schools when that happens since that's something that like astrologers receive as a community from skeptics well they'll point to one thing like sun signs and say mm. well isn't that isn't that reductive if you try to divide the entire world into just 12 categories and you know the astrologers will be like yeah but that's not you're just taking one piece of yeah. the system it it sure would be we're not doing that sure. but right if if we did that so Similar things. Um, I did want to say though, I didn't because I didn't want to frame this entirely about a negative thing or just about him because it was mainly just about the discussion that it sparked. And he did. Mm. Colin, Colin actually did on February 9th put out a video that was kind of an apology once he started getting some pushback from people and from younger astrologers from different backgrounds that were saying this was a useful tool and they didn't feel like he ac- had done it justice or had looked into it with detail to be able to speak on it in that way. And he put out. Partial apology, partially still standing by some of what he said. And I did want to say I appreciated the thoughtfulness and concern for his clients that was actually underlying his points. And I think that's one of the Mm -hmm. common threads that comes Mm -hmm. up with modern astrologers when they make these critiques. Because I've famously had discussions and debates with, for example, Mark Jones on the podcast early in the history of the podcast, or a debate with, um, um, Eric Myers early on in the history of the podcast, I think in episode 18, where we talked about some similar things. And that's always the underlying motivation, which I actually really respect because it comes out of a place of wanting to protect um, their client base and these people that they're connecting with on a very intimate level and trying to help in some way and not wanting to be damaging towards either not just their clients, but also their students or their Audience in some instances, especially with people like Colin who have developed a larger audience mm. and are speaking to a very broad community, that that's really what's motivating it more than anything. And I think that's really respectable. Um, it's mm-hmm. just that I think every. Go ahead. No, continue. Oh, it's just something I think that um, that's an important motive for every astrologer, or it should be. Um, we should all be coming from a place of compassion, you know, and as we've We've talked about, and I, I think got touched on here. You know some of the some of the uh, the judgier um, elements that y-axis of uh, uh, of astrology um, is, uh, if implemented with compassion, um, can actually provide more compassion because it gives you an ability as the astrologer to really describe. Um, what was super hard and what it was mm-hmm. like and when and you know if 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 you don't have those then you you lose the ability to actually um describe and locate those um seminal troubles in a person life in a person's life and I remember there's a little bit of that that came up in the discussion with Eric long 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 ago 
um, and that we, if in order to solve problems, in in order to hear someone, to see someone, um, which both of which can be very healing, we need to be able to see uh, what didn't what didn't go very well, mm. um, and we need la- yeah. we need language in astrology for that. Yeah, it actually provides a system for understanding the totality of the native's life better, and that is ultimately helpful, even if that can sometimes provide you with information that um, could point to struggles that the native has in their life, as long as you deal with that information carefully and um, in a way that's at least trying your best to be helpful or healing, that's that's useful and that's not something that should be downplayed uh, or, or gotten rid of. But therein lies the question yeah. is if, if you haven't studied it, you might make the assumption based on individual pieces that that's not a useful system because it conflicts with knowledge that you have already. Um, so you know, this is. I'm, I'm sorry, I want to jump in. There's one thing that occurs to me that might be a chart reading style thing. So mm-hmm. for you know, I'll look at a chart and I will often see some some narnar. I'll be like, ooh, ages nine to eighteen were fucking brutal. Um, but I don't um, describe everything that I see in a chart in a reading. I, you know, I, I'm at one, there's not enough time to do that. And two, I respond to questions. And if people want to mm-hmm. talk about that, then I will bring that stuff up. But I won't just like lecture people about how awful a period of time was and how that's a configuration. Like if it comes up, I will use the tools to map it out because that'll be uh, for the, um, for both mm, solving the problem or at least minimizing it if it's going to recur, for understanding what has happened in the past as accurately as possible, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I, I, rem- I actually remember when I was like 21 and I was just good enough at astrology to be obnoxious. I remember I could see like problems in a person's life. I'd be like, oh, this happened to you when you were younger. And they're like, yeah. And I wasn't doing professional readings then, thank God. Um, but like that, that is a thing you can do if your if your reading style is just like, let me tell you everything I can see here. Um, you know, you're going to get into more trouble than I have the tools to answer questions when I am asked the questions. If that makes sense. Yeah, Which is part of Did my have- policy of tact. I mean, counseling yeah. counseling skills and and the importance of client. Astrologer interactions are one of the great pieces that developed in modern astrology that's important to synthesize with traditional astrology is one of the things I wanted to say is that not a, a concession maybe isn't the right word, but is something in favor to some extent of what that argument is that Colin and others have made. What were you going to say, Kelly? Yeah, I mean, I think to respond or to add on to Austin's point around the tact as a practitioner, you know, it is finding a style that allows you to communicate with your client around topics that are of interest or of pressing urgency for them. So asking questions, you know, what is it that you would like to talk about? Are there any particular questions or issues or themes that are really up for you right now? Um, The other way that I've approached it sometimes with clients is, um, would you like to talk about X topic or Y topic. Um, And they may say, oh yeah, I do want to hear something about, you know, my finances or my childhood or, you know, children or what have you. Um, It's a fine line between, um, you know, because I agree, Austin, it's not just, I, I don't personally think that in a session, it's just a matter of telling the client everything that you can see in the chart because 
that's overwhelming because you'll be there for three days probably. There's way more information yeah. in a chart that feels, you know, if you've got an hour or 90 minutes, um, however long your sessions are structured, uh, you want that to be most useful for the client. So it's mm -hmm. a dance between what is it that they really want to hear about? Um, and there are times when I'll say to a client, would you like to talk about this topic or that topic? And they'll be like, no, that's not of interest right now. I'm like, fair enough. doesn't matter what I can see in the chart about that. They're in a place where they're focusing on something else right now. So it's my job to serve them in that space at that time. Absolutely. That's well put. One of the things I would bring up, because I don't know if I ever did when it came up, but um, to reinforce the point about one of the things I did want to say as a concession is I do think the point system as it started being applied or as it is sometimes applied to the essential dignity scheme is somewhat reductive and can yeah. uh, lead to- I, I teach. I teach that as training wheels. Like nobody right. who's good at riding a bike uses training wheels. Can training wheels make you like help you get so you can ride a bike without them? Absolutely. But being like, oh, I'm a plus 11 and you're a minus two, right? Like right. that's, that's literally one dimensional uh, reduction of human to one dimension. It, it doesn't tell you anything of useful value or practical insight in any way, shape or form. Yeah, it's just sometimes useful at a glance for seeing what planets might be in their own sign or exaltation versus what's I think not. It's, I, sorry, Chris, go. No, go ahead. I was going to say, yeah, I think it's useful as a teaching tool. Like if you want to compare, is this a little bit better than that? Well, it was awarded this many points versus that many points. But it, in the same way that, you know, you learn the rules and then you figure out how to finesse them. It's I, I love the training wheel analogy. You know? Yeah, because it's not well, what like, it means. No. Well, I, I literally like, you know, I've taught uh, essential dignity in classes for most of this decade. And so I'm like, okay, how do I like, I, I, I waffled about like, do I even go, you know, do I even bring up the point system? But people were bringing up the point system because they were finding it anyway. Yeah. And so it was like, okay, well, what's the, what's a useful frame on the point system? Um, that's not just, you know, it's trash or it's gospel. And so I'm um, glad you like the training wheels. That's 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 the best I've got to, uh, Kelly. I think it's appropriate. I mean, I think it's it's good to know it's there, but yeah, you don't want to live or die by, oh, I'm plus 15 and I'm minus 15 <laughs> or, I mean, no yeah. wonder it's depressing because if that's the measure, then I feel like, yeah, you would feel that it would be, yes, that, you, you wouldn't feel good about that. Yeah. No, and also- be living in a very flat reality. And and also one of the quests for me and for some other traditional astrologers has been over the past decade or two has been to go back to the original language and try to understand what the original terms and concepts were. Because in some instances, they've been translated through so many different languages over the past 2,000 years. And there's been so many changes during that process that we've lost sight of what the original intended concept or term was. And one of the um, discoveries I made a few months ago, which slightly annoyed me because I wish I had made it and I'd worked on this for years, where I was trying to come up with a good translation for the original Greek term for what is now called the sign of a planet's detriment, which is just when a planet is in the sign opposite to one of its domiciles or one of the signs that it rules. Like, for example, Venus having its domicile or its home sign in Taurus um, when it's in the sign opposite, let's say, in Scorpio. Or Venus in Libra as its home sign, Venus versus being in the sign of Aries. And um, I realized that the actually the 
original, I couldn't come up with a good translation of it for years, but I found this word that's perfect for it. And it's the, the word is antithesis, that that's actually the closest translation of one of the original Greek terms that I can find um, where they started re- referring to that concept of a planet being in the sign opposite to the sign that it rules. Um, and that actually gets closer to the original conceptual structure of what that meant in the first place, which is like there's the concept of a planet being in its own sign and having greater autonomy in order to express its significations in a way that come naturally to it versus when it's in the sign opposite to its domicile, it's in a sign that's ruled by a planet that has significations that are diametrically opposite to or in some instances contradictory to what that planet normally tries to signify. So for example, Venus in um, Libra, but if you put it in the opposite sign in Aries, then it's in a sign ruled by Mars, which has sort of opposite or contrary significations. And when Venus is in Aries, it then has to express itself partially in a Martian or an Aries type context, which can sometimes be different than what it's used to. That doesn't mean it's necessarily inherently bad, but it means it's going to express its way itself in a way that's different than just if it was in Libra or in Taurus. Yeah, um, we've talked about this before, and I'm in total agreement. You know, a planet in its own in the sign that it rules, <clears throat> the sign supports the thesis of the planet, and a planet that is opposite its domicile is in an antithetical position. You know, uh, Venus and Scorpio, Venus says, all right, well, how can we bring people together? And then Scorpio, playing the role of the antithesis or challenging, says, here are all the reasons not to trust that motherfucker, right? That's, it's an antithetical, it's a challenge to the thesis. Right. And I mean, sometimes in this discussion, people would be like, well, I've seen plenty of people where They've had Venus in Aries, and they've had great expressions of that planet, and and that that's fine. That's nece- it's not necessarily saying that a person can't have a great expression of that planet or something like that. It just means it's going to be expressed in a more Aries or a more martial context, whatever that means, mm-hmm. depending on what houses it's ruled or what part of the chart that it's located in. Right, the antithesis doesn't doesn't mean can't be great. That's not what the, that's. That's not <laughs> that's not what it is. It means that if it if it is going to be great, it is probably um, almost certainly going to have to engage in that dialogue of thesis antithesis, um, the product of which is usually synthesis. Um, but that is a challenge rather rather than uh, a position like Mars in Aries, where Mars says, "Hey, let's burn stuff." And Aries is utterly in support of that thesis, where there's there's no need for dialogue because it's just right there. There's no you know there's there's no um, thesis antithesis synthesis um, ad nauseum. Sure. So is that yeah. part of what you're getting at with your post, Kelly? Originally about like people that had some of those placements, but that manifested them in great ways. Yeah, I think they just do. I mean, one example is Maya Angelou, the the poet and the writer who has Mercury in Pisces, so in antithesis there, um, opposite Virgo. And there's actually a number of uh, – when I did the tweet, there was a lot of Mercury in Pisces examples actually of people who are 
you know, creative writers and poets and and musicians and lyricists, and they're doing beautiful Mercury type things, but in a very Piscean way, if you like, it's it's emotive or it's musical. They're not doing accountancy or detailed filing systems, you know. So the antithesis is it's it's functional, not necessarily in the way the planet might prefer, but in a way that's more relevant to the sign influence, if you like, um, to go a little further into that. Um, that that, that well, these I people think, are not bad. Yeah, yeah they're not bad. Well, they're just going to do that type of thing, I guess. Well, and I think that um, a, a famous poet for Mercury in Pisces is a very good example because uh, there are certainly there, there could be disagreement around this, but a, a lot of people I think would agree that poetry is, especially 20th century and onward, is you are trying to get things, uh, sentiments, states, experiences, um, whatever, that are uh, beyond the capacity of normal language to contain and evoke. And you're trying to figure out a way to get something which inherently slips away from is bigger than language. And you're trying to find a way to do that in language. And so mm. often the, the form of language has to be rearranged um, in order to adequately do that. Poetry rarely uses like um, normal essay uh, conventions of Syntax. punctuation, right? Because you like you're trying to do something that's you that's often beyond language, um, yeah. and so there there is a there's literally a dialogue there uh, in the the process of the poet. Absolutely, I mean, um, I don't know how much I I could just string out so many of these Mercury and Pisces examples, but it is it's it's playing around with. I guess the form of language, the function of language, and it's coming out in a, you know, a non-typical way in some capacity, which when you're applying that to poetry is going to work better. Um, but from the perspective of Mercury, which is designed to measure and to assess and to gather data and things, it's not doing that, if that makes sense. Yeah. Nowhere is Mercury described as the, the poet of the skies. No. <laughs> Mercury, Mercury is the writer, but he's not, it's not described, uh, Mercury is not described as the poet. No, no. Um, yeah. So I guess it just involves thinking a little bit more rather than taking that flat um, approach to things. Yeah. So um, I think to sort of wrap this up and bring this to conclusion, um, one of the points I would just want to say is that to bring us outside of the dignity thing and more on a interactions between astrologers from different traditions thing that while 10 or 15 years ago, it was actually really hard and, and very obscure to study traditional astrology and it was easier for astrologers from different traditions to sometimes make pot shots at it without having studied it and for that to almost be okay on some level because it wasn't something that was easily accessible. It's so easy and accessible to research now or to study traditional astrology and just assess it as a system that there's almost no excuse for taking shots at it without having done that. So I definitely invite astrologers to study traditional astrology and then tell us what you think. And it's like if you have critiques after you've studied the system in its totality and been able to evaluate whether it works or whether its philosophy or underlying motivations make sense, 
then go nuts. I mean, that's the whole process that a lot of us have been in and modifying and changing the system and adapting it to modern times for a decade or two now. Um, but don't make those sorts of critiques until you've done that process. And that goes for traditional astrologers as well, because I saw some traditional astrologer on Facebook the other day um, really being critical of some modern astrologer, and I found that just as distasteful as a traditional as a modern astrologer critiquing traditional astrology. Um, it goes for whatever tradition, just study those different traditions so that you have a place to speak about it. And if you haven't, then it's a little bit more dicey to venture those sorts of criticisms. Yeah, absolutely. And um, wouldn't it be nice if the skeptical critiques of astrology came out of that place, where you know someone thought about all of the uh, the ways that astrology is practiced and the different ideas and implications, and then came to thoughtful critiques rather than just hey, you know, NASA just announced that the zodiac move and the 12, 12 kinds of people is terribly reductive. Right, we we want to avoid being those skeptics to other schools of astrology. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe it just says something about human nature that there's a tendency to do that in general. So anyway, yeah, like it's pick there. up Demetri- pick up Demetra's book, pick up my book, pick up some book on traditional astrology and just read it, and then make those critiques. Um, soon, Kelly's book on secondaries. Yes. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, there will be traditional um, astrology elements in it, but I think your book and Demetra's, even Ben Dykes's book, um, are probably good primers for people who want to get the body of traditional astro. Well, yeah. And Ben actually wrote like a great called like, it's not introduction. It's literally called, yeah, an introduction well, you- to traditional astrology for today. It's like yeah, this tradi- big. It's tiny. traditional astrology for today. That's what it was. Because he called that his invitational book, which was like an invitation to he wrestles with and introduces some of those philosophical and conceptual differences between modern and ancient astrology to address some of those questions for people that are just coming into the field. Um, anyway, one of the, I don't want to say the best, but one of the funniest things that came out of this whole controversy for me was um, the guy on Twitter Phosphor, at Phosphor Astrology uh, designed these shirts. And I'm a very big fan of like clever shirts and clever plays on words yes. and this is like one of the cleverest things i'd seen that crosses like sub- check it's a check mark on like several different boxes of interests for mine so these t-shirts uh called friend of dorotheas which i really love i don't know if everybody like gets the the play on words but it's very cl- clever smart i like it austin what do you think oh i i saw this the other day and i i hit the love button yeah. Um, so that's great. I would recommend people check that out. It's at phosphor.threadless.com. And I'll put a link to it in the description for this. Um, yeah. So friend of friend of Dorotheus. I love that. All right, guys. Um, I think we are getting towards the end of this episode. We've gone for like two and a half hours. So uh, we've learned that now in doing the forecast first, we tend to spend a ton of time, especially in busy months or major months like this one was, where we've got a big outer planet shift, uh, more time talking about the forecast. But I'm glad we did it, and I hope people find it useful. Um, Kelly, what do you have going on this month? Do you have anything coming up in the month of March? I was thinking about March. Um, I'm continuing to teach my beginner intro course, so 
deep dive on the signs and houses. Um, so nothing super new for me. I'll be prepping for my planets course, which will start April 13. So I think by the time this comes out, there'll be some info about that on the website for anybody who wants to get a good grounding in the planets. Perfect. And that's at kellysastrology.com? Yes. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Austin, what do you have com- coming up in March? Well, um, I will be preparing to teach my year one and two astrology class. Enrollment will be open in March. We're going to get started um, kind of first thing in April. Um, and so if people are interested in you know committing to a good eight months of studying astrology with me and a group of people and you know not just dipping toes, but going for a long swim, uh, enrollment is open there. I also... I, th- I thought for Bizarro Mercury Retrograde, I would actually put out podcasts on my podcast. So I'm actually going to, oh, I'm going to try to put out, I don't know, four or five episodes in the next four or five weeks um, of wow. that. I've, I've, had, uh, I've had some really good conversations with people that were recorded. And so we've got, oh, we've got a few people. We've got Freedom Cole. We've got Becca Tarnas. We've got a couple other folks. So keep an eye out for that. I'm because I've I only I've only put out two episodes so far, and I've it's I've had it for a year. So you know, um, backwards Mercury time, I'll actually be a podcaster kind of for a little bit, and then I will go back into my months long sleep. And then I'm not sure. Uh, I I'm not sure about the the Sphere and Century release schedule. There's something that I elected this fall that's very interesting and special that got made. It might come out during March. I am not sure. Um, so keep eyes peeled on that. And Ooh, I don't that's think exciting. I have anything else going on. Yeah, yeah, it's it's good. Um, you guys are getting ready for Norwalk, which is officially sold out. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's true. Yeah, that's well, that's end of May. There is still space in our post-conference workshop. So Austin's teaching one on the Deccans and I'm teaching one on combining transits and secondary progressions, which is the Monday, May 25th. Um, so you can, if you aren't already registered for the conference, you can buy a day ticket just for the workshops, but that's all that's left at this point. Yeah. And I meant to say, yeah, somebody and- told me there might be one day passes for certain days besides the workshops. So check mm. in and don't take my mm. word for it about it being yeah. completely, completely sold out. But you'd have to email Laura to find yeah. out. Yeah. 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 Austin, what were you going to say? The preparation is beginning. Yeah. Um, so this is going to be the first conference that both Kate and I are going to be speaking at. Um, Super exciting. Is, really exciting. is this Kate's first speech, like at a conference? Yes, it is. And you guys <gasps> technically didn't it's get not together. not her first speech, but no, no, <laughs> but like a conference lecture or something. Yeah, this is this is the first behind the podium. And you guys, uh, it has like additional symbolic meaning for you guys because you guys kind of got together around the time of a Norwalk, right? Oh, we got together in a Norwalk parking lot, sir. And it was okay. classier than it sounds, but that <laughs> that that was the location. I was going to try to put we that more gently. We had a reasoned discussion about whether it would be fruitful to pursue a monogamous relationship in a Norwalk parking lot. So yeah, it's a it's a it's it's one of our anniversaries is Norwalk. Brilliant, that's um, awesome. And that was also the first conference that you spoke at. I remember watching your first talk along with somebody else, two other people's talks. I think at Norwalk, at least at like a major mm-hmm. major conference. And 
Yeah, that should be that's that's exciting. So congratulations to Caitlin. She deserves it, especially um, in you know helping and being uh, one of the primary people who's helped to promote the practice of astrological magic over the course of the past few years. Um, so it's great that she's finally getting recognition for that now, speaking at conferences. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a nice it's a nice unfolding. Um, it's a nice unfolding from her showing everybody what she's got and also people unfolding their, you know, their appreciation. Uh, it's a, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And Julie Palmer asks who's buying Caitlin drinks after her presentation. And I would just caution that there will probably be so many people buying drinks, uh, for her or wanting to, you might want to be careful about that because she could get, uh, alcohol poisoning given how good I'm sure the top <laughs> talk will be. Oh, it's okay. We'll 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 make sure to train uh before Norwak. Oh, oh okay, good. okay. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Um, All right, my my Pisces friend. Uh yes. As for me, the only thing I have going on is just uh I've been getting back to expanding my Hellenistic astrology course. And uh there's been a influx of new people signing up for it recently through the astrologyschool.com. So if you're interested in some of this discussion about accident about dignity. What the underlying conceptual structure, or just traditional astrology? I had somebody that was kind of a prominent modern astrologer sign up for the course recently, and I was really excited about that. We were talking a lot about maybe even doing some like an intro and an exit interview of what her impressions are of traditional astrology going into it versus like how she feels about it once she's actually completed the course and like seen the system in its totality and any ways that her perspective is has changed or not changed. Um, based on that. So that's kind of a process I'm interested in working with different people on um, just through that and through what I've created through my own research with Hellenistic astrology. All right. Um, I think that's it for this episode. So um, people should definitely follow that ongoing discussion, follow the hashtag, hashtag dignitybabes. I'll put a link to it in the description um, on below this YouTube video, as well as on the astrologypodcast.com website for this episode. I'm sure that's going to be an ongoing and interesting discussion. I wanted to thank and just give another shout out to all the people that are participating in that or who initiated that, because I think that's a really brilliant venture and it's helping to create this, create more of a dialogue rather than just like flame wars or controversy or what have you. And that's always important. All right, guys. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Astrology Podcast. Thanks to our live audience of patrons who joined us. I think there was 60 patrons or something at this point who joined us in the chat and gave us some good feedback. So thank you. We appreciate you. Uh, and thanks to everybody who supports the Astrology Podcast through our page on Patreon in general, since that's what makes this happen. So that's it for this episode and for episodes in the month of February. And I'll be back again in March with actually a full packed schedule of episodes um, including like Venus retrogrades. I think researching an episode on the birth chart of the United States with Nina Griffin, an episode on the four elements with Darby Costello, and like just a bunch of really cool stuff coming up. So we will see everybody again next month. So thanks for joining us. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thanks to the patrons who helped to support the production of this episode of the Astrology Podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, shout out to patrons Christine Stone. Nate Craddock, and Marin Altman, as well as the Astrogold Astrology app available at astrogold.io, the Portland School of Astrology at portlandastrology.org, and the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs available at honeycomb.co. 
The production of this episode of the podcast is also supported by the International Society for Astrological Research, which is hosting a major astrology conference in Denver, Colorado, September 10th through the 14th, 2020. More information about that at isar2020.org. And finally, also Solar Fire Astrology Software, which is available at alabe.com, and you can use the promo code AP15 for a 15% discount on that software. For more information about how to become a patron of the Astrology Podcast and help support the production of future episodes while getting access to subscriber benefits like early access to new episodes or other bonus content, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast.